Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the 81 All Out podcast. This is Siddhartha Vaidyanathan at Sidvi on Twitter. And I'm recording this after a delightful conversation that Mahesh and I had with the writer we have long admired, Mudar Pateria. Mudar was a full-time cricket writer for the Sports World magazine for most of the 1980s. He covered a number of tours in places as diverse as Pakistan, West Indies and Sharjah and of course within India and wrote four books on the game. Anyone who has read him would have sensed the breadth of knowledge, energy and wit that he brought to his pieces. It was writing with so much creativity and passion that many of his contemporaries are happy to admit that he was one of the finest cricket writers we have had. I normally do an introduction before starting the chat, but Mudar was so chatty right from the first minute that I didn't want to stop his flow of thought. I simply pressed the record button and lapped up his stories. In the air, Srijan takes it! India win! He'll come back for the second. India have won the test match. India have won the series. They're going to get back for two. India at home. Lords goes wild. So I, at one point in time, somebody offered me the entire collection of sports worlds. And I thought, you know, that it would be a great uh, tragedy if I didn't buy it. So I ended up paying some 10, 12,000 rupees. I bought the entire bloody collection. I think it's, I don't refer to it very often, but I think it's a good solace to have, that, you know, anytime. So I did collect all my articles, you know, from 1980 onwards to 1990. I went through the prominent articles and I, I got them scanned because I had a scanner in the office. So today I've got a reasonable collection of my own stuff. If somebody, I think Ayaz Memon wanted to write a book last year, a bibliography, or rather anthology on Indian cricket. So I, he said, you know, something has appeared on Lala Amarnath in the 80s. I said, yeah, 86 January, I wrote the article. So he said, get it for me. So I gave it to him in about, what, three hours, because it was all scanned in my hard disk. Oh, wow. So, so, yeah, so maybe... somewhere this, yeah, so I'll tell you, somewhere this streak for documentation, putting things together, archiving, is actually one of our DNA legacies that I do have. My father was a very big archivist. He didn't have, so he archived his own life. It, no letter was ever thrown away. So here too, I think from 1974, 75, 72, 73, in fact, all the test series that India played, I used to cut them out of the statesman and I used to create my scrapbooks. So, you know, the amazing thing was, I didn't realize it then, and this is what is all about connecting life backwards, that, you know, when I took all these clippings out and I put them into the hardbound exercise books, what I actually developed, and I didn't realize it then, was the ability to make a great page, how to design, because you had finite space, and you had funny angles of articles. Articles never followed any shape. No? One could be long and the other could be short. So how do you size it into a particular finite space? which doesn't change from page to page. And uh, apart from cricket, which of course was a core benefit, the spin-off benefit was excellent page making. So in the early 80s, when I joined Sports World, they couldn't figure out how does this clown know how to make a good page? Yeah. I'd been doing it for, I'd been doing it for nearly nine years. Yeah? Because I'd been making my own pages yeah, with you know, gum and fevicol and pick, pasting it. So all, and whenever you had a big tournament like the, World Table Tennis Tournament in 1975, that merited a larger notebook. That notebook was large. So all the articles, so anything that would have appeared in the Statesman uh, three days before the tournament and 10 days after the tournament, it was all there in the scrapbook. So as a result, one picked up names, 
one picked up uh, matches one picked up uh, you know photographs i could look at a photograph and say this bloody stupid photograph bad quality printing 1974 statesman i could because i that's what i had grown up with you know we went to fluent to order the cricketer international in those days so we bloody statesman was our cricketer it was our resident cricket once it was everything so one just went through that so extensively that it became your dna in your memory and i think like scores uh, that you talk about yeah. i mean that's the other thing that uh, happens then because uh, that is the, that scorecard becomes sacred because you can't uh, you can't you don't so have tell you this, so yeah yeah so once the scorecard becomes sacred and more importantly at a, at a most distilled level numbers become very very special in your memory you if you tell me 38 well chandra oval 1971 you tell me 221 is your a distinctive memory You tell me, fifty-seven is Gavaskar's greatest innings in England. What he considered ninety-six is possibly, in my mind, what be what would be Gavaskar's greatest innings. So every number becomes special to you, and that's how you know the somebody tells you, "Do you have a great memory for faces?" I said, "Yeah, I don't remember your face. I'm so sorry. You have to introduce yourself, but not with numbers. Somewhere I have believed that numbers, the the yen for numbers, the affinity for numbers, were all very cricket derived and very cricket inspired." If it hadn't been for cricket as a numerical marker in my life, maybe I would have just remembered faces and not remembered numbers. But numbers is what we live for. We knew statistics ninety nine point nine four. You don't have to tell me what it is, boss. We know. The second ball, nineteen forty eight oval, Eric Holly's. We know what it stands for. So you know, I think these get built up in the mind, and you know, suddenly you know you develop a yen for numbers. I think it was very cricket derived. Today, sadly, that part of memory is completely gone. It's been obliterated. because there's just so much of it happening so i don't remember anything and even numbers even uh, in normal life like uh, we used to remember at least 15 24 numbers back in the day and yeah. in fact we had sharda on the podcast recently and she remembered the number that she called when she had to get in touch with sachin tendulkar in 1989 yeah. she yeah. remembered his home residence landline number yeah. Yeah. how many numbers do we remember today <laughs> so you know even though i have not sent a kapil dev a letter for the last maybe 30 30 35 years i still remember 39 sundarnagar new delhi so you know these things become very important so i'll tell you this fascinating memory about this guy uh, i think jeffrey archer writes about him about this cop and he wants to stay awake at night because he knows that the person he's tracking is in the house beyond and he doesn't want to fall asleep so he keeps memorizing the cricket statistics right through the night and staying awake and i found that to be quite an amazing thing to happen you know somebody actually wrote about it it's our life wow i i i i somehow don't remember this at all though i've read quite a lot of him jeffrey archer <laughs> no jeffrey archer the cop sitting outside and he's wanting to keep awake because the villain is inside the only way he can remember he can keep himself awake is by you know keeping on rattling of the statistics one after another that's how it is beautiful beautiful <laughs> so you know i tell you one of the things that i did 1982 England versus Pakistan uh, the series was on i would clue into the bbc so you know 3:30 the match would start 3:30 indian standard time it would end the match would end at about 10:30 quarter to 11 at night and i had this running packed with the telegraph that you know i am going to hear the entire commentary and even though that nobody is going to give you who scored how much in how many minutes how many balls for you know uh, all those kind of uh, the arcane statistics at 10:50 pm at night 20 minutes after the match ends i will be at your desk 
and I shall have given you the full scorecard of the minutes are because I would keep hearing the BBC and keep noting them down. And any time they repeated, I would keep cross-checking. So I created an entire grid by which I could map the entire statistical outline of the match as it as it uh, you know progressed. So at ten fifty at night, they would hold the sports pages for me, knowing that I would come up with the uh, with the scorecard of the England Pakistan Test match. This is not even England India. England Pakistan, but they were very nice enough to carry those scorecards. Oh, and you were working for them then, were you? No, I was. I was working for Sports World, okay. so my job would finish at five thirty. But from three thirty in the afternoon, even while I was in office, I would be clued into what was happening in the Test match and keep noting down. And okay. the moment it was lunch in uh, UK, I jazz off home because my house is not very far. It's about a ten-minute walk from the Anand Bazar office, and I'd be home in in the space of about ten minutes. And from home, I would track the entire match right at the end of the day. This is this is amazing. How much of that series do you remember now? Eighty-two, I remember reasonably. I okay. remember that Mudassar would be the man with the golden arm. He would come in and pick up wickets, and I remember it largely for the memory of that one man who virtually uh, bought that entire summer of nineteen eighty-two alive for me. And that man was Abdul Qadir. And when I went in Pakistan in eighty-two, I went in the month of November, late November. One of the first things that I did when I reached Lahore, of course, first thing that I did was to. Take the night bus to Sahiwal because India was playing in Sahiwal, a place that used to be called Montgomery in the good old days. And uh, Sahiwal, I reached in the morning and I went and reported the match. But the moment I returned from Sahiwal with the Indian team, and this was incredible for me because I was 19 years old, and the Indian team was in the same bloody train compartment as I was. It wasn't a second class AC; it was a third class. I and mean, we used to call it third class. Third class is basically three, three tiered, non AC. And the one memory that I have of the Kasim Umar sitting beside me, and the one memory that I have is quite incredible, is that even though it was a moving train, Ashraf Ali, their wicketkeeper, actually said his prayers on the bloody bunk. You know, I'm a practicing, I'm a practicing Muslim, but I couldn't believe that somebody could actually say his prayers on the bloody bunk. But that's what he did, and that quite blew me out. And the you know all the cricketers and all. Trooped out uh, at the Lahore railway station, and I think next evening I had I had tracked Abdul Kader down to Dharampura. He used to play stay at a place called Dharampura, which you know we go to Zaman Park and a little beyond Zaman Park, and then you turn right is a place called Dharampura, an old world uh, aura of that place. And I went around looking for the uh, his father used to be the muezzin in the mosque, so I didn't know where Abdul Kader would be staying. So all I knew. Was that his father was the Imam Sahab, the so Imam Sahab of the Dharampura Mosque. That's all I really knew. And I asked, you know, the Panwala and this guy and that guy, and they all pointed to one direction. And I went there, and he wasn't at home. But within about fifteen minutes, the word had gone around that there was this fellow who's come from India looking for him, and uh, he turned up. And I remember he took me to his antechamber, and in the antechamber he made me stay sit on a khadiya. It was a jute khatiya. I remember that clearly. And to save himself the embarrassment, he covered with a kapra. So I sat, and that's when I did my first interview of Abdul Kader. For me, Abdul Kader was a legend because he had brought leg spin bowling alive. Now, interestingly, at that moment in time in Pakistan, he wasn't a big hero because they considered him to be a stooge of Imran Khan. They said, "Imran, you're Imran's man. He's stooged you into the side here. You don't belong here." So in Lahore, he used to be a hero. In Punjab, he was a hero. But whenever he went to Sindh, 
Abdul Qadir was the butt of all jokes. But here was I coming from India, and India for them was a big thing, you know. And I was writing for Sports World, so I interviewed Abdul Qadir for maybe an hour and a half. His pals sitting around him, he had his own flunkies there. But from that moment onwards, the kind of kinship that he established with me, it turned out to be a very long series. I was there in late November, and the series continued till early February. Six Test matches. Abdul Qadir was my best friend, and I think you know he considered me to be. you know an extension of himself you know he was all over so uh, fascinating memories and i think that trip was a very big character building trip for me that pakistan trip something i will never forget for the rest of my life i keep telling my children you know you guys won't know what it means to be a 19 year old on your first bloody international trip where your where your office is putting down money that you can go out and report and i was supposed to be imran's ghost writer i mean i was there partly as a cricket writer but i was there as actually a ghost writer and i was supposed to be the pakistan cricket captain's ghost and that's how I, and his dictate to me was very clear every day very telepathically he told me this end of the day 4:30 dressing room 5 minutes which means that within 5 minutes of the game ending match ending for a particular day you have to be outside our pakistan dressing room and he would leave word with khwaja khwaja was the bouncer official bouncer of the pakistan team he generally stood out in a mustachioed guide mel muscle pathan to throw people out the moment he saw me he would take me in so now what happened was quite interesting that uh, because i was the official ghost of the pakistan of the pakistan cricket captain the pakistani cricketers developed a sense of respect that you know i was 19 years old yeah. i mean you know i was generally to be considered to be a straggler a guy who's seeking autographs but because kaptan had you know given a veto to khwaja uh, to let me in they developed a, you know some kind of a respect for me and during the later part of the series it was quite normal for javed bianda to come into the press box and say spending time with me today come and he would t- i remember this in lahore fifth test match he took me home and that's where he gave me the famous interview about why he had Take you know raise this bat to beat up Dennis Lilly that got quoted by Beno in his book on reflection, but you know that's how I gradually wormed my way into the Pakistan cricket team. Each time when I would come back from the day's play, getting over, every single Indian and Pakistan reporter wanted to know captain ne kya bola because Pakistan reporters you know didn't have access to their own captain. It's not like today. In those days, it was a feudal setup. Imran was the patrician. and you know i don't like to use what plebian but the pakistani reporters were a collection of urdu writers and whatever don other newspapers there there were punjabi writers so they never had access to imran khan he was considered too way beyond i was the only clown who had access to uh, imran and imran was an incredible character he would give me his day synopsis almost like a, a you know like a ceo would be reporting a certain dictation to an anglo indian stenographer starting with first paragraph you dictate four sentences of the first paragraph then he'd actually tell me second para and i would move on to the second paragraph and then he would complete a second paragraph and he'd... so you know it's what i the the fascinating part was i got a interesting insight into the mind of the man he was telling me the story starting with the biggest thing first then the relatively less important then declining orders of importance and he never uh, kind of he never he never pulled his punches 
if he actually felt that I think uh, I remember this, you know, it's coming back to me nearly 38 years later that Abdul Qadir was trying too many things. So once I remember telling Qadir at the end of the day, Kartan told me that you are doing a lot. He said, Kartan has said to So which means that, you know, when he's trying out too many things was Imran's code for that, you know, he was trying out the bloody flipper, he was trying out the googly, he was overdoing the googly, he was putting on the straight one. He should have only kept bowling a certain line and length and then just done the occasional googly. But, you know, it's amazing that the captain of the Pakistan cricket team was actually telling me all this. So somewhere I became a repository of these stories. So Kadir would occasionally take me aside and say, what did he tell you? And I found it quite amazing that I thought he would be telling me what captain was feeling like in the Pakistan dressing room. But somehow they wanted me to tell them what uh, I was privy to. And I found that entire experience of being in the Pakistan dressing room very educative. One, I saw them in varying states of undress, which I thought was very interesting for a 19-year-old. Uh, you know, I, I 19-year-old Calcutta brought up in a very prudish environment. And this was an eye-opener. But more important, all these guys, you know, chaps had idolized in the 78 series. In 78, I was just a 15-year-old, 16-year-old. And there's Zahir Abbas and all these guys. But you know what? That's the kind of connect one gradually built up with them. And I went to Pakistan nearly five times in the 80s. 82, 83, 84, 87, just rather I would say 86, 87, just before the World Cup. After the World Cup, I went back to make a film. So I had to, you know, uh, look for footage. And then I went back in the famous 89 Tendulkar series. That's nearly about five times. But it all started with 82, 83. And I don't think there was ever a series in my mind which was as magical as that. For the sheer variety of things I saw, the sheer cadence of the language that I absorbed, the variety, it's an extension of India. And I keep saying this to people, and now, of course, nobody takes me seriously, that if you want to really, your education of India is never complete if you've not been to Pakistan. And I think it's important to understand and appreciate India, sometimes through the prism of a neighboring country. And I think Pakistan played that role in 1823 for me. And uh, how was the uh, response among other journalists like, uh, as you know, here's this 19-year-old who has uh, direct access to Imran and was there a sense of both, uh, you know, who's this upstart? <laughs> was there that sense yeah, too? So, so I'll tell you what, there were a number of reactions and it's interesting that you asked me this. My first response was that uh, each evening when I would meet Imran, I had a certain discipline that I would go back to my hotel room and transcribe his entire copy. I would not only transcribe his entire copy, but a certain sense of internal urgency. I would take that copy and go off to the uh, you know, telegraph office. In those days, we didn't have the modern accesses of communication that we have today. So uh, the copy could only be sent against a telex card. And that telex card you took with you along with your typed copy and went to the telegraph office and you gave that copy in. What they would do is, they would take that copy and punch it in. That punching was not the sending. The punching was to effectively see that, you know, whether they had got my copy correctly and they would make you proofread it. If you cleared that copy, then they would take that entire tape and you know, the entire punching would come out in some kind of a code on a running tape, which would be, you know, very thin. Just be this width of your, uh, uh, you know, your, your uh, not your, your thumb, your thumb finger. And it would pass reels and reels of that. Finally, they would punch it in. And if they got your line in Calcutta, the bloody thing would start. And the clackety-clack would continue for another 55, 60 minutes. So I remember that there was no night 
on that entire series during the test matches that I went to sleep before 12.30 a.m. That was my routine. And the next morning, I would again write out, bang out a copy, go in. Before I would enter the press box, I would give my copy in. And that copy would run for about a, maybe an hour or so. So I think this reputation quite developed that this fellow clogs the machines up. So because I would be the first guy to hand the, cop, the copies in. And that was one. And the other one was, was of course, circumstantially, I just 1981, I'd been on a pilgrimage. And uh, I'd completed the Hajj. And uh, it was quite amazing that uh, the Pakistani media would refer to me as Haji Saab. I'd had a name which, was sound, which sounded pretty difficult for them to pronounce. So the, generally, everybody knew me as Haji Saab. And the gen- traditional image of a Haji Saab is that of a geriatric. You know, there was a 19-year-old clown who would refer to as Haji Saab. So that's how, you know, uh, you know, they kind of knew me in the Pakistani press box in those days. And, and that was the, the, was that the tour when uh, uh, Imran basically said the Indian crowds were very ruly, as you wrote in that piece? No, that was 84. You know, he had come for some uh, exhibition match in Bangalore. And Sports World said, you know, go and get an interview of Imran. So, I mean, whenever Imran kind of put his foot on Indian soil, Sports World said interview. So, they flew me out. And it was kind of some kind of very nominal uh, exhibition match. And I turned up and uh, he said, what are you, where are you going? So, I said, I'm going to the ground. So, come with me. So, he, I sat in the front near the driver and he was at the back. And that's when he used the word. He used the word, Karachi crowds are not very ruly. Gosh, I'd never heard of, I'd heard of unruly. <laughs> but I'd never heard of ruly. And you know, I kind of went back to my Oxford dictionary to check. ruly word kya hai But you know, I'd heard of unruly, uncouth. But if somebody says the man was very couth, that was, would, would come as a very big surprise, you know. But that's what our man was. I won't say he was unpredictable, but he was a refined, suave guy. He made you think. He said things that make you, made you think. If I ask, the other thing was he never ducked. I remember 1985 Sharjah. I uh, asked him a question on the Taliban. At that time, one of the, one of the individuals that the Taliban were inspired by. Now, everybody forgets about this today. But in 85, just remember, this is nearly 35 years ago. One of the figures that the Taliban drew the inspiration from, it was Imran Khan Niazi. Why? Very interesting. It's because he was one of the few guys to be anti-colonial. So one of the guys that they actually drew inspiration from was Imran. So once when I was interviewing him in 85 in Sharjah, I asked him about the Taliban effect. And you know what? The amazing thing is that if you ask most Indian cricketers, they either will duck or they will may just give you an inarticulate reply. Imran was very comprehensive in his reply with the reference to Kashmir, reference to Taliban, reference to Pakistani government, reference to Indian government, reference to Indian political stance. He gave you a, a reply which was, uh, I would say, reasonably overarching. How did I know that I have to ask him a question like this? Oh, very simple. 1983, Tavleen Singh had done an interview of Imran's in Sunday magazine, where she had actually positioned the article as, or rather the interview as, all the questions that you wanted to ask Imran Khan but never could. So it wasn't a cricket interview. So I think that was the first time I understood that there was a non-cricketing dimension to him as well. So by 85, when I had known him reasonably well, I asked him non-cricket questions as well. And Imran Imran was very willing to answer. Never ducked. Never, he, ne- he never smarted. He, 
he he thought it was just an ordinary normal thing you know he's asked me a question on politics and i've actually given this guy a reply he enhanced our confidence to be able to ask him this question don't forget i was just 22 years old 22 years old at that time but i had the confidence to ask him yeah, this man will answer and he generally answered only once i remember that he kind of took offense 1987 we were uh, walking up the stairs at taj palace hotel in delhi and i told him that i felt that the pakistani team was excessively appealing you know we were we were walking together and suddenly i realized that he wasn't with me because he had heard what i had said he just stood rooted to his ground at a stair you know stair level which is about a couple of stairs or maybe three or four st- st- uh, levels lower and he says you can't be serious he, he actually took offense at my saying that the pakistan team was over appealing but that's the kind of man he was he generally never refused to answer any question he never said it's off the record never i mean the off the record words were something that he never ever employed in any interview of us and uh, we've spoken about uh, you know the, his the, you writing a column for him and uh, the person he was but uh, you also saw some phenomenal spells of his and performances i mean karachi 82 uh, must have been karachi something. 82 is you know karachi 82 is really you know when you take that as an index then at, at the end of the day there's nothing else to do maybe he's done some great work against west indies you know in the late 80s and people did tell me that you know he was legendary spell but if you ask me legendary spell by any bowler i still say it was imran and it's not because uh, other bowlers may have they may have bowled better sometimes you know it's a little difficult to say who bowled better because he's sitting 70 yards away but if you look at the overall impact the holistic impact of what one spell did one of course is that you know he broke the back of the indian batting number two it happened in the second test match second test match in karachi so effectively i think if i'm not mistaken the first my first test at lahore was washed out so this was an important match third i think it was the fact that he picked up wickets for next to nothing it's how he picked up those wickets vishwanath shouldering arms to imran and getting bowled by a delivery that came in i think that was something it was you know there was uh, when i remember uh, this this uh, Jake Lamota and Sugar Ray Robinson, early fifties, they fought on the fourteenth of February, and they call it the Saint Valentine's Day massacre. That Christmas Day, the Christmas Day massacre in nineteen eighty-two, Pakistan versus India at Karachi. Yeah, and and you and I think the sports world headline was also that uh, something about Christmas, right? Yeah, it was. It was Christmas Day, twenty-fifth of December. See in. Uh, in you have a test match starting on the 26th of december only in melbourne pakistan couldn't care less na. so 25th is actually a chutti ka din it was a chutti ka din so you know everybody had come in and i remember my host in karachi had wrangled a ticket that you must take me to the match on uh, on christmas day and i had taken him and uh, he was very happy <laughs> and and uh, there was one thing more about imran that i wanted to uh, talk to you about i mean unless and until we move on to other things 1987 world cup semi final in lahore you were uh, fortunate enough to be there in that famous upset when australia beat pakistan but i some i found that archive of your column and i found a fascinating insight that said that at the end of that match 
in the uh, dressing room imran was wearing a t-shirt that had a tiger on it now when you yes, talk about absolutely. imran and tiger everyone talks about 92 but 87 also he had a tiger <laughs> no 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 very clearly he had a tiger very clearly very clear i remember shahid sheikh that's the name of the uh, cricket writer from jung he was he had broken down i mean you know i can understand journalists being a little downcast you know you feel because your ticket to calcutta would have been taken into account because the finals were in calcutta but i could not believe that a cricket writer of a prominent newspaper breaking down and bawling like a child i saw it yeah so you know this is this brought home the fact that in some of the smaller countries and i've seen that kind of reaction in sri lanka i've seen that in pakistan the smaller the country and even seen in bangladesh the smaller the country the more intense the feeling even among journalists and journalists are supposed to be disp- dispassionate journalists are not supposed to take sides if india does badly you will say india did badly but no no not in pakistan was and for that match they thought, thought that it was divinely ordained and written that uh, pakistan was going to calcutta for the finals and here this guy comes steve voy upsets everybody's plan and half the journalists in the pakistan dressing pakistan media the uh, uh, press box were downcast and i remember shahid sheikh breaking down bowling like a child i mean he actually had to take handkerchief out in the white tears and all that i thought it was quite amazing and and i think there was a general sense of shock that day right like everyone everyone thought that uh, and and imran also says everyone came up to me and said what happened what happened as if i had an explanation <laughs> so you the pg wodows if you read you know it describes it very well you could cut the gloom out of the air with a spoon yeah i would say that was you could cut the gloom out of the air in the lahore of lahore evening with a fork it was that bad and, and, and yeah. it was ordained if somebody had told me that it was written in the holy book that you know pakistan is going to play in the finals in calcutta i would say yeah i believe it because you know that's how the mood was yeah. but after that they felt that a great uh, uh, that a great what should a great betrayal had taken place the destiny had conspired against them this couldn't be true and they were only soothed by the fact that india got beaten in the semi finals a couple of days later and you ended that report again i was fortunate to get the archive you ended that report with the line that said the party was over and imran khan had passed into the history books so it it seems that there was a feeling that this was the end of imran yes of course i think he had virtually announced that this was his last uh, this was not going to play after this so it was over the game the the the, the last full stop had been written in his cricket career of course i mean little did we know as to how history would be rewritten but uh, at that time it was over so there was a you know it was a, the tragedy in two senses more than one one of course that pakistan had lost but the other was that great cricketer had played the played the last of his of his of his matches played the last of his career and that one great chapter was now coming to an end so in a sense having seen that and having seen the depth of emotion in lahore to then come back to calcutta for the world cup final did it feel a bit anticlimactic <laughs> i'll tell you what was very up, was very upsetting for all of us the way we folded in the semi final see we were in transit so from lahore to delhi we were waiting in delhi and we uh, landed in delhi understanding the scores it was live television was on definitely so you know we were keep keeping on keeping on tracking the score and the fact that we had also convinced ourselves that we were going to calcutta and that's where the great final was and this would now be australia versus india suddenly the script changed it became australia versus england 
so it was you know what and that's it's a line uh, you know that they use often in urdu that begane ki shaadi mein abdullah diwana so it was exactly that that we were all all dressed up and really we had no way to go <laughs> but, but 80000 people 80000 people turned up and they it wasn't their constituency playing it was somebody else and here they turned up because they bought tickets and even i think the the those days we were very naive you know the the aura of the cricket ground the eden gardens the world cup even if your team wasn't playing and you had no emotional stake in the game you still went and as a as somebody who had grown up in calcutta did that uh, match mean a lot to you no i surprisingly it didn't and uh, i i remember a day before the match david frith was there and we were all playing cricket and uh, at the at the delauzi institute and uh, it didn't mean a lot because it wasn't our match uh-huh. i mean we were going to ride on somebody else and england australia so one went and one went through the motions and one wrote about the crowd and one wrote about this and one wrote about that but really we were under invested in that match we weren't really emotionally you know we didn't have a skin in that game so we so, just wrote about it just like any media people would and we went into the press box to see you know whether john woodcock was i was more concerned about whether robin marler was there tim rice so i'll tell you another thing this is very interesting that while i was on that circuit i was given the pakistan circuit and i remember england playing pakistan at gujranwala if i'm not mistaken no yes uh, faisalabad faisalabad playing uh, faisalabad yeah not gujranwala gujranwala was england versus uh, it was west indies versus uh, england if i'm not mistaken gujranwala is where alan lamb basically went nuts yes absolutely yeah. and i remember that excellent uh, run out by uh, by uh, hooper not hooper mm. harper harper but that apart that apart it's in faisalabad that I actually saw Tim Rice in the press box and Tim Rice would travel with the Indian England team and in those days my perception of Tim Rice was wasn't that precise you know it was but Tim Rice was a very very big cricket freak he would he, he was a, i would say he was a groupie in a in a slightly more exotic sense and i happened to see him in faisalabad and i remember him because he had white shoes he was a tall guy he wore white trousers and he had white shoes i said wow and then realized by his you know he had a distinctive hairstyle i said oh tim rice so i didn't know much about him it wasn't google you could just google tim rice and get to know you either were evolved to know who tim rice was or you never knew who tim rice tim rice was it was a pre google google days but i remember tim rice in the press box so uh, okay there are two ways i can take this now but i'll take it in one way now that you mentioned tim rice uh talk a bit about uh, you know your uh, early influences of uh, reading about cricket or reading about or just reading uh, who were the writers who you know made that impression on you and uh, how did you develop this uh, interest of uh, cricket writing say partly i, I would start with cricket writing so i'm going to start with cricket as a subject mm-hmm. and i must tell you this that we grew up on that 50 paise sports weeks okay. of the early 70s and the pictures of sports weeks the articles that people were all indelibly etched in the mind why i mention sports week is that it became an issue in the family uh, i used to get a po- used to get pocket money for 2 rupees a month and uh, sports week was a weekly and i would spend i would select to spend 2 rupees a month my entire savings or whatever i used to get on buying this magazine and what would i do with the magazine i would, I would cut the magazines up because i used to have scrapbooks my mother took great objection 
and she said if this is what is going to happen to the magazine then you might as well save your 2 rupees and do something better with it my dad said no this boy is being entrepreneurial he is buying he can easily have mom said you should spend it on ice creams dad said no if this is what he is wanting to spend it in trust his judgment so i used to buy my sports weeks and then i would clip the sports weeks up create scrapbooks and stuff and that got while i used to buy those sports weeks i would occasionally read them as well so that's how the culture of reading began and i would i won't read anything else i would just read the sports weeks monday at 4 o'clock is when the sports weeks would arrive at the panwala not a panwala it was a you know uh, the uh, magazine vendor and i kept that practice up for quite some time nearly 10 to 12 years i would go and buy from him and uh, what happened concurrently was something very interesting i grew up in the community the daudi bohra community in calcutta where after god allah prophet and the quran the next religion was actually cricket the bohras took cricket very very seriously to the point that uh, they made most of the character assumptions not on the basis were not on the basis of whether a person was uh, good in business or he had shown great integrity in business or his sense of governance was very high or he treated his you know wife very courteously but whether he could bat well whether he wore his cricket clothes with a certain sense of etiquette whether his uh, you know his cricket socks were actually stockings and not socks they actually judge people's character on the basis of how they were turned out in the cricket field you know now it all sounds like fiction but i can tell you in the early 70s this is exactly how seriously the bohras took the cricket and i grew up in that environment uh, if a team was to be selected for a shield match there used to be meetings on a saturday evening amongst people who were 45 and 50 year olds to decide match strategy it was that serious and in the lunch break uh, on a sunday during a shield match the general menu reserved for players was always chicken sandwich oh no sorry not chicken sandwich chicken soup not sandwich not food but chicken soup reason is because they felt chicken soup was a good digestive you could digest it fast and it would give you an energy kick so it didn't matter whether you had fielded in the morning or you had batted in the morning but lunch was always chicken soup for the boss and that's the mahol in which we grew up the kids were assigned responsibilities of scoring you know they made character assumptions on on children based on whether the children could fill the score sheet out properly whether they could fill the score sheet out without scratching without making you know overruling overwriting it's on these assumptions were based the opinions of whether we were going to become good citizens in life or not so cricket was like clr james we have seen in trinidad i can tell you that in a in a lot of ways abhoras in calcutta were exactly the same you know you'd be amazed to know that whenever we had a shield matches the crowd we are our population bora population in calcutta and those used to be 7000 people in a shield match 1500 people would turn up and i would say out of the 1500 people about 800 to 900 would be women i have never seen such a social uh, intermingling and a social ferment at not a test match level but a local level it was like a village cricket match 
and the entire maidan used to be full of boras and the boras virtually ran the trade you know they would bring the aloos and you know they would they would vend sweets and they would vend things to eat it became a village environment there while that 22 players fought out in the middle so i think these things were very formative so when i expressed a desire that i wanted to become a cricket writer the parents didn't say you need to do an mba they thought it was a very honorable thing to do today if my son were to say that i'm going to write cricket he'll say sucks he should be going to water and cordel but not so in those days when my when i told my parents that i want to be a professional cricket writer they actually thought it was a very honorable thing to do so they went around telling other people he's going to write on cricket he's going to write on cricket so you know what when i joined sports world i also told them that i am not going to be a sports writer i am a cricket writer it was almost like i'm a brahmin so don't you know don't <laughs> classify me don't classify me be me with the rest it was almost like i made this condition uh, obligatory on them that only if you accept me as a cricket writer will i you know join sports world so very interestingly now i look back on that uh, this entire sequence with a lot of uh, uh, i would say surprise and awe but whenever they assign me to write on a hockey match or a football match which they occasionally did i refused to take a byline i would say that my byline is i'm not going to be smart my byline with a football column i'm a cricket writer so effectively what happened was that the football or cricket uh, or a hockey column would often be carried by a special correspondent even though i would have gone and reported but i'd never take a byline the byline would only be reserved for cricket so what happened was that in the entire anand bazar if they needed a clarification on cricket i would say you remember the guy in sports world is going to ask it that's the brand i developed when i was only 19 years old that's how all. how did you get the i mean what what went into you to make such demands so early in life and your career i really don't know i don't <laughs> i don't think i had a great see this branding stuff stuff only dawned on me much later but i knew one thing that i'd get taken less seriously as a cricket writer and be consigned off as a generalist i wasn't a generalist i wanted to be a specialist i so i tell you uh, when i and i remember this instance very very vividly in my mind 1982 83 keith fletcher's team had come down to india mcc versus india they those days they used to still be carrying the mcc tag and uh, it so happened that the president of the mcc was also in calcutta and that it was a gentleman called hubert dogert and ashish re happened to know hubert dogert from his london days so ashish needed a flunky to go along with him to meet hubert dogert Sashi so told me that will you come i said wow i i'm going to meet hubert dogger because i read something on so i went i went to the grand hotel and in the midst of that conversation hubert dogger mentioned two instances he mentioned a uh, uh, a poem called oh my hornby and my barlow long ago and this was this poem was from the 1880s Hubert Dogger just remembered that one line. I recited the next eight lines for him, <laughs> and you know he almost fell off his sofa because he turned to Ashish and, and you know he couldn't believe that this is this nineteen-year-old in Calcutta has actually recited virtually the entire "Oh my Hornby and my Barlow Long Ago" that that entire poem, and that was one recitation. And he mentioned something in passing about Warwick Armstrong's playing. a team led by uh, 
uh, led by A.C. McLaren in 1921. And McLaren said, I'll, I'll pick my 11 and I'll beat Warwick Armstrong. Because Warwick Armstrong had won the entire series in England and he, they had not lost a match. McLaren, McLaren's 11 beat Warwick Armstrong. And I told him exactly how much Faulkner had made in that match. And I told him exactly the scores. And you know what? Ashish came back and told Tiger that this guy has surprised the hell out of Hubert Doggart. So, a couple of, I think it's a couple of days later, Tiger walks into the sports world uh, cubicle. We used to have a, not a very large room, but, and Tiger being Tiger, you know, Tiger spoke in monosyllable syllables and he never spoke full sentences. Tiger said, you're going to Kanpur. Now, you had to uh, basically decode the Morse. And the Morse was that you are going to be reporting the series, the test match on behalf of Sports World in Kanpur in early February. That was the full sentence. Tiger never spoke that full sentence. He only said you go to Kanpur. You have to figure it out. So I figured it out. But it partly happened because of what happened with Hubert Doggart in the front of, uh, in, in, in the presence of Ashish. And Ashish very graciously came back and told uh, Avik Sarkar and uh, Tiger Potato, this is a 19-year-old madman. He went and did this with uh, Hubert Doggart. So, so that is what I was trying to ask you in the earlier question. Like, obviously, not Sports Week couldn't have been your only source of cricket. I mean, to be able to recite uh, uh, the poem and to be able to tell a, a Faulkner score, you would must have been also steeped in uh, cricket writing of some other type, right? So, you know what? I must mention the name of my neighbor. The neighbor is Bilkis. Bilkis used to stay on the second floor. Bilkis had... Uh, an access to a very valuable property. And the property was, she had a library card for British Council. And whenever she was not using using the British, the British Council library card, she very graciously lent me those cards. And I remember in the space of about 18 months, I cleared out virtually the entire British Council cricket section. There was hardly a classic on cricket that I had probably not read. So if you ask me, CLR James Beyond the Boundary, you know, actually, uh, much of it was lost on me at that time. But I think I completed that. It was like, you know, a child reciting the Quran. When, you know, when we, are, when we are young, by the age of seven or eight, we are enjoined to complete the first full recitation of the Quran. And when I was 15, I had completed my first full recitation of CLR James's Beyond a Boundary. So, and in addition to that, a few Cardis books and a few this book. So, virtually everything that I needed to know I had not just read, I had actually made notes out of it. If I came across something that I found very interesting in that book, I actually copied it in my notebook and I tore that notebook out and documented it by saying, Trevor Goddard slash Walter Hammond uh, slash 1932. And I took that and I copied it twice over and put that under Goddard's uh, envelope, which I still have in my collection and put another of that same note under Walter Hammond. So effectively what happened in 24 months, 36 months, that Walter Hammond envelope had then become a fat envelope because all the classics that I'd read, wherever Walter Hammond anecdote occurred, I didn't have access to, you know, scanning it on my phone or transferring it electronically. So I would have to copy it. So I would copy everything and put them under respective envelopes. So the other day I was cleaning my entire collection and I came across those envelopes and I said, let me see which number did I end at. I used to number each of the envelopes. I think 257 is what my last envelope was numbered. So I had probably 257 cricketers 
completely archived and logged as per my system, my Google, when I was what, 15, 16 years old in the late 70s. Oh, wow. Okay. So, okay. That, you know that what? Is... I'm just thinking at 19 years old, you were not only the, one of the best cricket writers in India, you could possibly have been India's foremost cricket historian going by what you've done. Well, you know, I didn't think too much about it, but I do know that when I joined Anand the Bazaar in 1981, uh, I was not even 19 years old. So they had a problem and I wasn't even a graduate. So they said that we will give you a, you know, we will put you on a voucher system. What's a voucher system? Voucher system means you can go up to the, on a salary day, you can go up to the cashier, present your voucher and get cash. But you can't get PF and you can't get gratuity and you're not an official employee on the books. So I said, when do I become an employee? So they said, you can only become an employee when you, up, when you present your college degree. So I said, shucks boss, my college degree is about three years away now. Yeah? So it's very ironical that I went to Pakistan and was Imran Khan's ghostwriter when I used to only be drawing a cash voucher salary of 850 rupees. When you are an 850 rupees salary employee, you don't get increments. So my remuneration was virtually frozen for three years until I... Passed my, got my college degree and the day I went and presented my college degree, within three days they gave me an official letter saying, the Anand Bazaar Publications is pleased to announce to accept you as a, you know, sub-editor in the grade of so-and-so, so-and-so with a salary this of this. Finally, I got that on an official level. Otherwise, there was a, just a cash voucher salaried, not even an employee, cash voucher salaried hand. And I used to, I, I acted as Imran Khan's ghost writer, as an official cricket writer. Why nobody knew the real story that I was only 850 rupee cash voucher uh, chap who works out of Farabhadar. Nobody knew I, the real story. And I had to actually go to my college and say that, you know, I'm getting this big break. Can you let me off for three months? The amazing thing is that I, I blessed the memory of Father Malyakal at St. Xavier's. He actually said, yes. Most people would have said, how will you make up your attendance? He says, go. We'll see what, happen, what will have, have to happen later. I don't think even he, even he realized the import of what I was doing. But uh, I'm really grateful that people like him who took such extremely, uh, I would say, lateral calls, maverick calls, they made a cricket career possible. So uh, the fact that you spoke about Tiger and, uh, you know, telling him, uh, saying that you're going to Kanpur, tell us also a bit about the... Uh, leadership at that time, because to uh, uh, given it was the early 80s and uh, people were obviously then uh, a lot of journalism was uh, uh, based on hierarchy to trust uh, a 19 year old to for such an important assignment. Tell us about both Tiger as well as your editor at uh, Sports World, as well as the general atmosphere at that time at Sports World, which had a young uh, setup. So I, I never asked Tiger why he did this. But I do know that Ajay Kumar, who used to be the, uh, in, in, before I joined, used to be virtually managing uh, Sports World, he would often tell me that uh, the day I would write a, let, a letter to, you know, I would write these letters to the editor pointing mistakes out. And they would shit bricks. They would say, oh my God. And the day I would land up and try and meet them, they would panic. And this is what Ajay has told me. Because they felt, oh shucks, this guy must have found another blooper in the magazine. <laughs> so, you know, so that's the re reputation that I'd built up. And you know what, I think by just focusing on cricket, by focusing uh, on history, because that's the only thing I knew very well, uh, somewhere I developed a reputation that this guy knows his cricket inside out. 
so they felt that yeah how bad can it be i used to so, so when i went to kanpur i was again ghost writing doing a little reportage for sports world little the what i actually ended up doing was that arunthu bazar had a tabloid called hindustan standard and i was damn kicked to be doing the daily reporting for hindustan standard i felt you know i was also a journalist i was a daily writer i was i was a cricket writer i felt even though i could have been a cricket writer also for sports world but writing for a daily even though it was a tabloid and they paid me 50 rupees per article that appeared but you know what all these little small strands of uh you know intervention was built my edifice of my little career and these people shoudin banerji old gentlemen of hindustan standard uh, arijit sen uh, ajay kumar definitely then tiger himself all these guys didn't say that we are encouraging you but you know gave me breaks and you know they, they treated a focused and dedicated cricket writer with a lot of i would say a lot of room gave him a lot of latitude and the humor to be in, in a very non condescending way and i think that i was 18 years old and 19 years old today i don't see anybody getting that kind of break in any major organization it's it's a credit to anand bazar that they even had somebody paying him 850 rupees on a salary you know on a voucher today it's unthinkable i used to do morning college uh, 6 o'clock to 9:40 10:15 I used to be in uh, in sports world. I would skip breakfast. I would be in Ahmedabad. I would go home at about uh, 12, well, at 12:45, one o'clock, and finally have my first meal of the day. And then because my house was pretty close by, but I don't see such decisions being taken anymore, largely because of the great respect for hierarchy. And yes, you know, in a certain sense, the press box hierarchy was not very comfortable because uh, you had some very worthy names you had very senior names and i'm not sure they were, they were very completely delighted to see a 19 year old in the press box who could rattle off any bloody statistic somewhere i consider myself to be equal maybe that was also an exaggeration the you know the, maybe the result of a, a mental exaggeration but the fact is that it did create occasional problems in the press box and then necessarily take very kindly but that you know being early 80s i presume it happened do you think uh, tiger who was forced into captain india at 21 uh, maybe that the, the, that sort of uh, whole uh, aspect of him said that okay anyone age doesn't matter anyone can do the job <laughs> so i'll give you two instances here and i believe that what you're saying may just be true he probably knew who to back and when to back i he tiger never ever told you that he wrote well he just didn't do it this was not him but he would do it in very different ways and i remember in 84 i must have quoted allama ibal when i was on the pakistan tour in 84 and tiger never told me that he read me very keenly or he liked but he only said this and he wrote me a handwritten note no he sent me uh, he sent me a telex that the next time you quote ibal try and get kushwant to translate that's all he wrote but you know somewhere if you knew tiger it was his way of also praising you and also telling you that maybe you might have screwed up in getting the right translation for ipal because i do recognize that uh, shikwa and jawab shikwa were translated by khushwant and allama ipal edition that the other thing that i must say and i think don't think this interview would be complete is that the other individual who was a very big help and backed me as a 19 years old was certain sunil manohar gavaskar Now it's a very interesting thing for me to say this 
because the Anand Bazar in those days didn't get along well with Gavaskar. And the general dictate given to all their cricket writers was, you must find something wrong with Gavaskar. But I remember the 82-83 trip. And I remember in the Pakistan trip, I was just 19 years old. And uh, each time I went to ask Gavaskar, who was our captain, for either a quote or an interview or a clarification, you know, he would go out of his way to make you feel very comfortable. I remember asking him for an interview on two different occasions of the series. And I remember one, when the entire series was over and we had lost, we had, it was a bad series to have lost. Gavaskar gave me a very patient interview. And one of the things that I came home with was certain respect and admiration for the man because he'd always gone out of his way to be accommodating. And this is one picture I have of Gavaskar. If you were young, if you were hardworking and you were conscientious, Gavaskar always went out of his way to support. It's taken me a long time to say this. I think I did tell him this when he had retired, that, you know, things were not the best between the two of us, you know, because of a couple of articles that I wrote thereafter. But I did write in one of my pieces that uh, a lot of people accused him of betting on matches. And I wrote why I didn't think that was right. It was very unfair for the world to have said that. But I'm saying this today that uh, the man is a very interesting man and he went out of his way to support a young journalist who was just 19 years old in 1982. So, uh, tell us about Kanpur, which, which you went. I mean, the first test is something that nobody forgets when they cover it. Tell us what you remember from it. Kanpur was, if I'm not mistaken, just after the Chennai test match. In the Chennai test match of 1982, a certain gentleman called Mr. Gundapa Vishwanath had written 200, had hit 222. And I remember Frank Keating writing that some of his square drives could have been hung by any art gallery. Ah, what a line to have read. So when I walked out on the Green Park, I remember it was one day before the test match, and they were just practicing a nets. And you know what? I saw Vishwanath batting at nets. He wasn't batting in nets as in proper nets. He was somebody was throwing it. You know, he got somebody to throw the ball from a half pitch. And he was just rolling his wrists. I've not forgotten that here. This was incredible what I saw. And of course, there were other memories. There was a memory of uh, Mike Brearley in the press box. There's a memory of Richard Streeton. I remember Richard Streeton because he had just won a Times award for writing a book on Percy Fender. You know, these are the heroes I'd grown up on, Percy Fender. I said, oh my God, it's Richard Streeton. So I actually went and took Richard Streeton's autograph. You know, this, the press box had perhaps more stars for me than the actual bloody ground idea. But you know, this was a 19-year-old. I remember having the lunch. It, I thought that the lunch that they served in Chepok, no, sorry, not Chepok, Green Park, was perhaps the most incredible lunch served in any cricket ground. I saw Lala Amarnath and Lala Amarnath was very kind to have posed for a photograph. I could never get over the fact that Lala Amarnath's entire hair was completely jet black. And right to the later part of his year, say 87, 88, 89, I could always remark, oh my God, he must be spending half an hour dying it or you know, two hours dying his hair. But that's how you know, some of the characters you made up uh, cricket. So I must mention one more memory on which I grew up. And this memory is that of, when I mentioned Vishwanath rolling his wrists, the other indelible memory is that of Mustaq Ali. Mustaq Ali had come down to Calcutta in 1978. And because I would keep writing letters to him in Indore, he had my address and he connected with me. We were thrilled here. Yeah? So our uh, neighborhood cricket team said, yeah, we must invite Mustaq Ali to tutor us on batting. 
Now, this might sound very bizarre today, but we actually told him. And he said, yes. So we went to St. Xavier's because I used to study in St. Xavier's and went and told the St. Xavier's uh, dean that we want a pitch to be reserved. The great Mustaq Ali has come down and uh, we want him to tutor us at the Nets. So they said, yes. So I remember it was a side wicket. And we must, we were batting, uh, some of our boys were batting and some of our boys were bowling and Mustaq Ali would tell, you know, tell us, you know, your leg used to, should be this way, your arm is not coming over, your, your right shoulder is this and all the technical stuff, you would keep telling us. Later part of the afternoon, we got a bright idea. And we said, sir, why don't you also bat? So he said, okay. So we gave him gloves. You know, in those days, we didn't have those abdominal guards which uh, had those straps and all. So he said, oh, no, I don't want that. So he, with only a pair of bat- batting gloves and a bat, he went in. Nothing is, no leg guards. And we... We were devilish guys. We put our best fast bowler to bowl at him. First couple of balls, he bounced it up. And I think Mustaq Ali must have just middled in. And remember, this is a 67-year-old man batting and facing a 17-year-old, 18-year-old tearaway fast bowler. I think it was the fourth ball. Ball must have pitched on the off stump or a little outside the off stump. And normally, what would we have done? We would have tried to hit it past cover. Mustakali didn't do that. He saw the ball early. He, you know, reverse swept. And he didn't just reverse sweep the way they're doing today. He reverse swept and he reverse swept not on the ground. He reverse swept a six. This is 1978. He rolled his wrist the other way and the ball flew right from the pitch and went straight and hit the library you know, they have that uh, skylight. It was made of glass. It bloody went right through the skylight, shattered the glass, and we never went up to the library to ask for the ball back again. But if you wanted me to see what genius was, I don't think I saw genius thereafter on a cricket ground the way I saw it on that afternoon. When Mustaq Ali took, just reversed the guy, picked him up full length and hit him for a six-over third man, and the ball went right through the skylight of the Xavier's library. It was incredible. I've never seen anything like it. Wow. I, I mean, this, this should be in uh, folklore. This, should be, this should be known more. This is like yeah, the, so the you Trumper know what? broken uh, window story, yeah, right? The yes. Trumper. So, you know what? We didn't have the vision. I should have gone up to Xavier's and told him that I'm going to replace your entire skylight. Not just the glass, but the skylight. I'll get you a new skylight along with the wooden compartments. But I want this to be taken out and if you can give it to me. It's stupid. <laughs> we, 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 we kind of sulked and we ran away. We shied away uh, for the fear that maybe we would be called up by the dean and asked to, you know, that you need to pay for this. We would not only have been willing to pay for the shattered skylight, we would have been willing to pay for the entire skylight. But we were fools. Short-sighted. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Like all the gully cricketers in India at that time, you must have been the one person who should have known the importance of that broken window. Yeah, so you know that was, and it was a bad. Later years, you know, one sort of became more aware of memorabilia. That I realized that uh, what people consider waste is actually great wealth. So I'll give you another in- memory which stands out in my mind, and this one deals with Pataudi. I think this must have been the year 1986 or 87, and this would be 12 years after Pataudi is retired. So I would have placed him at, 
he must have been what mid 40s what would be standard was that our sports world team would whenever tiger came to calcutta the sports world team would go for a lunch with him that particular afternoon we had gone to the delhousie institute and i think the boys said let's play cricket so we guys played cricket tiger never played he would always either he would do two things either he would sit on the edge with his beer or he would be umpire he was always a willing umpire that day for some reason he was he nursed his beer and he was sitting on the sidelines i don't know somebody must have provoked him said tiger you've been sitting for too long why don't you come and field he came and i remember him standing somewhere near widest mid wicket and you know what we didn't have stumps so what we did was in those days you had that collapsible metal chair which you know often used to be used by the peons in the office so delhousie institute had that we bought that from somewhere made that the wicket and uh, one of us hit the ball near mid wicket and remember tiger is standing uh widest mid wicket and lee i remember very clearly is wearing a t-shirt two buttons were open and he was wearing corduroy brown corduroy uh, trousers je- jeans and kolapuri chappals that's tiger and somebody hit a ball to mid wicket you know he must have walked over from widest mid wicket to mid wicket and then what i saw i will not forget ever he bent down normally most of us would have bent down got up thrown the ball to the wicket keeper the wicket keeper would have tried to run the batsman out so tiger all this is a waste of time what he did was he he didn't run him tiger would never run it was beyond his shan or shaukat that he would run to get the ball so he just ambled across to the ball bent and while he is bent he just flicked the ball so he flicked the ball off his ankles and he flicked the ball off his ankles and the ball was tennis ball it went and hit the the metal chair and the metal chair ricocheted of you know it sort of shook with the impact and i remember the metal chair was thrown off and this is a man just throwing the ball from near his ankles and with just one flick of his wrist and he hit the stump straight i never had never seen him field in the covers but that day we all of us and i remember all those guys of sports world are still around and they still remember they said oh that tiger incident you know when we talk about it this is this is the, the apex of our memory that that man from his ankles he just flicked the tennis ball and it shattered the chair uh, how was he as an editor did he edit at all was he just there no i think he was just there but okay. i'll tell you what he actually did he wrote his own edits and okay. Okay. Uh, he wrote his own edits he crafted them well but apart from that it was largely you know he 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 was hands off but i remember one occasion when he wasn't hands off and uh, i remember there was this guy who had spied against india called veen i think larkins i don't remember his first name but captain larkins and i don't remember his, it wasn't veen definitely because veen larkins was a cricketer but larkins was somebody who had spied against india and he was in tihar and somebody had read that larkins was using cricket as a medium of bringing prisoners together so once i casually mentioned to tiger that you know i think i want to take you guys to 
meet Larkins in jail and maybe even if he could do something and go and play with him. He said, yeah, the idea doesn't sound bad. Let's do it. So I spoke to Gavaskar and I spoke to Mohinder Ramanath as well. And all three of us, Jimmy, Gavaskar, Marshanil, Tiger, we went off to Tiharji. And Larkins met us and we played cricket. And I took photographs and this and that and Larkins showed them around and they had a good time. And I remember in the jail, they also happened to meet a gentleman called Rajendra Sethia. Sethia was in jail in those days. Sethia was at one time one of the richest men in the world until his business collapsed. Now, uh, when we came out, I think a couple of days thereafter, we were going, I was going to write a piece. Tiger said, we won't carry the story. I said, Tiger, we must, you know, I'm, it's, it's a good break. And uh, Tiger said, no, we're not carrying a photograph and we're not carrying a story. So finally, he was the editor, he took his call. But I remember that three years later, one day, bad discretion on my part, I used the photograph of uh, Gavaskar in jail uh, in Tihar with Larkins. And uh, I thought it was a non-issue. But you know what? He got back. He just sent me a very, very soft message he sent. He only told me, I thought we had an agreement. That's all he said. Nothing more. So in a lot of ways, I found him to be extremely witty. He had a great eye for wit. So he could, you know, I think you got along well with him if you played a practical joke on him. That also sent a message out to him that you treated him like an equal. Uh, if you gave him standard suggestions, you, you know, you, you would bore him. So one day I remember that I was sent to, to collect Tiger from the station, Howrah station. And uh, he never came by, he never flew to Calcutta. He always came by train, Rajdhani. And uh, my responsibility to go and collect Tiger. So I went. And uh, it so happened that uh, the car that we were taking to come back got stuck in a jam on Howrah Bridge. So we were sitting. We looked on the river. I told him, you know, there's another way to get across the river and that's a ferry. He says, you must be joking. I said, no, I'm telling you. He said, why don't we take it? So I said, yeah, we can. But it'll also mean that we'll have to walk or get out of this car and send him off with the saman, the, his luggage or whatever. We'll send him to the Anand Bazaar office. We will get down, walk back, which means we'll get off the uh, bridge, go to the ferry counter, stand in queue, buy the ticket, go into the ferry. You will have about 450 people for company. Then don't tell me that, you know, this guy is asking me for an autograph and that guy intruding on my privacy. He said, no problem. So we actually got off and we stood in that ferry queue and we went into the ferry. The ferry must have had its usual 450 people. People were damn surprised. And he had come down for a quiz contest in Calcutta. So you know the typical Bengali, and I remember somebody asking, Pat Kenoese, you know, Bengalis have a very amusing way of saying, they would never say tiger, they would say Pat. Pat Kenoese. So I told him that he comes for the quiz contest here. And they would, uh, they very respectfully tell him, we remember you hitting six, Banban holder, straight shot. So, you know, all this very amusing, jo jolly company happened. And then finally, we got off, got off on the other side of the river. Now, there was no car because car we had already sent off. So, we hailed a Sardarji in a taxi and we reached the Grand Hotel. But that's how he was. You know, he, he didn't take himself very seriously. And he kept himself, you know, in a room, if he sat with you or sat with a number of people, the 
he his voice would be among the last you would hear but yet you know in a lot of ways people gravitated towards him because of his sheer aura if he entered a room you knew that there was there was a he was like imran there was a presence value so you know he carried his presence value very well he knew that people coveted his presence value but he never pushed his opinion never pushed his presence on anyone now that's that extent i quite respect his memory wonderful yeah so i mean you've been uh, you were lucky to have uh, direct contact to two sets of royalty one imran and one pat i mean what doesn't get better than that yeah. so, and he was very casual otherwise you know most people get get very either standoffish or they probably feel awkward he wasn't he was absolutely enjoying himself and you know there are little vignettes one picked picked up of him so even when he went to the grand hotel you know he the way he would pick up a conversation with the person who came to make up his room he would ask him his name now you know most people would never bother about the name of the man who's coming up to make up your bed and he would ask him kitne saal baaki hain aapke retirement all these things i've heard so i'm not making it up so the person would say ke abhi sab kareeb nawab sahab abhi bhi 8 saal baaki hain to he the then he would say ke 8 saal aapke poore ho jaye to bataiyega kabhi so you know this is how the graciously the conversation would build up and there's some things about him which were quite remarkable and i thought he was in a in a number of ways he was a very gentle soul at one level and he was also in his own way a very interesting character for example he would lie in his house beside the phone and keep listening to begum akhtar the other thing i remember his talaffuz you know when you speak urdu we are very particular about the cadence nuances of language the k is never the same as a q and a k it's always different and i remember one word the tiger would always use qutub minar most people would say qutub minar tiger never said qutub minar you also qutub if you understand the k for qutub in tiger's language always came from the back of his throat it was it never came from the front of his tongue if it's a front of the tongue you know that the guy doesn't understand his urdu but to that extent in those little vignettes you actually caught the glimpse of a man who'd been brought up with a lot of refinement and a lot of taste he would always tell you qutub minar like that in that little vignette you pick up ki yaar aadmi mein kitni grace aur kitna depth you could pick that up wonderful so uh, having uh, but uh, now that we have uh, touched a bit about calcutta and uh, lovely uh, conversations around cricket uh, you have to tell us about the general feeling around cricket in the 70s and 80s in calcutta because then uh, there wasn't any uh, major cricketer from uh, uh, who was playing for india then and uh, how was it and how was it compared to football and also how good really was karthik bose <laughs> so that's a very 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 surprising question you should ask me because i remember going in 1975 to a match Uh, where Karthik Bose was playing, and Karthik Bose must have been in his seventies, late sixties, seventies at that time. So I have two memories of Karthik Bose. I used to go to Eden Gardens to copy pages from the Wisden. You know, Eden Gardens is a cricket library, the Cricket Association of Bengal, and they have every single Wisden. I think from eighteen eighty one onwards. So because they have this fascinating collection, in those days I would go. Uh, after my school would be over in the afternoon i would go to the eden gardens and copy pages so 1896 uh, so 1897 wisden ranji cricketer of the year because 1896 he made his debut 
every word written on ranji's cricketer of the year i would have copied now coincidentally the one man who would always turn up in the late afternoon at eden gardens used to be kartik bos so i would go and meet him and as i would say that you know i am a researcher i sit in the library and some of the people they would refer me to kartik da by saying that you know he comes every day this boy is a very uh, laborious and very studious character so one day i asked him about mohammad nisar and i was fascinated because all these guys of 1932 36 were like hallowed names he told me once that once nisar he said i couldn't see the delivery and he said nisar hit me on my thigh and he wasn't wearing a thigh pad and uh, he must have been rubbing his thigh in pain he said nisar walked down the pitch and he hugged me and he said that was mohammad nisar so you know in his own way he told me that of course there's been there's been no greater fast bowler in the subcontinent than mohammad nisar and he also told me that there's a human side so you know kartik bos was someone i kept seeing 1975 they were playing some uh, nominal you know match at the taltala cricket ground where uh, kartik bos was present and pankaj roy was present i saw kartik bos bat and kartik bos at that time must have been in his 70s the square drive that kartik bos played was it was a different class i mean i, I wouldn't say that i don't see that now but for a 75 year old to have batted the way he did is like mushtaq ali batting in 1988 eden gardens fred truman bowling to him there was a cab uh centenary match was you know half by cent some you know 50 years of they had this exhibition match and mushtaq ali late cut against fred truman by god that was something same class kartik bos so kartik bos and all these guys were people with interesting opinions and you know he could talk to you about tc longfield 1938 sadly you know we never recorded all that sadly we never sat them down and took down all that they had to say all these are obliterated from people's memories because people have lost that so but uh, in terms of popularity i mean you have written about how uh, in your community uh, you know cricket was always huge but uh, in calcutta in general was uh, football still the main sport or were there pockets where cricket was also huge in when you were starting out football was prime religion and it was prime religion for two or three things one it had a long tradition behind it the gentry the affluent gentry and uh, they patronized football number two football was built around club rivalries and it was not just mohan bagan east bengal see it also was fostered by the fact that people who came from the other side of the border which is uh, bangladesh today they were largely supporters of east bengal and people who are from this part of bengal were traditional supporters of mohan bagan so based on these rivalries was founded the great football tradition of bengal the amazing thing was that we considered our footballers to be gods that the class of those footballers was at a different level sadly this myth got punctured in 1978 when the world cup football was telecast live and what happened as a result was that we saw argentina win so you had leopoldo luke mario kempes and we finally saw their standard and i think we finally realized that the football being played in our bengal backyard was really not of a very high standard i think that was the great myth that got busted and gradually i saw you know you, you 
people who read about or hear about this will find it very funny that in the mid 70s East Bengal and Mohan Bagan were playing our school was always give over early which means that our school since Xavier's which normally would give over at 3.30 would give over at 2 o'clock or 1.30 only so that we guys could get home safe before the match started. Now why is this important? Because given where Park Street was Everybody going towards East Bengal ground or Mohan Bagan ground or Eden Gardens. In those days, they actually used to play in the Eden Gardens. Entire traffic was one-sided. Every bus, every tram, every taxi, every road was chock-a-block. And this started at 1 o'clock in the afternoon. So schools would give up by 1.30. You got home safe. And there was another reason for the safety. Supposing if one team lost, and I do know for a fact that if any of the big three lost a match... Bricks used to be sold at 5 rupees. Tickets used to be sold for 2 rupees, but bricks used to be sold at 5 rupees. So to keep students safe, students would be sent home early. This was the aura of football in Calcutta. Cricket was there, but cricket was a second. It wasn't the same level of football. Partly because we never had our own champions. So you, we, we, we grew up idolizing all the other guys. So you know what happened was, whenever a cricketer from another city came to Calcutta, he may have been a good cricketer there. Calcutta became a great cricketer. And if a great cricketer came from another city in Calcutta, he became a legend. Which means, I remember this Patrick Eager photograph of Oberoi Grand Hotel, 1982-83, no, 76-77 when the MCC had come. There is a crowd outside the Oberoi Grand. You know, I have seen myself a crowd of two, two and a half, three thousand people just standing there doing nothing. The job was only to sit, stand outside and just go back home in the evening and said, I saw Clive Lloyd. He got out of the Oberai ground and got into a... Or he got out of the, of the Oberai ground and he got into a cab or he got into a car. Or I saw him pass in a car. That was the only job they had. 3,000 people from morning to night standing outside a hotel only to be able to go back to the neighborhood and say, I saw this cricketer in flesh and blood. So, you know, Calcutta is a different class of obsession and passion. I don't think I've ever seen this kind of thing anywhere else in the world. Oh, okay. So, now that we are in Calcutta, let us uh, also stick to, let us uh, fast forward a bit to 1984 uh, Eden Gardens. And I have to quote this, which is one of my favorite openings to a piece that anybody has written. And I will quote it in full. Uh, I start the quote. A quarter of a century ago, if an anonymous boy from an Ikdam middle-class family could have looked outside his grilled window and woven visions of hitting a century match after match, leading his country, marrying an actress and making it to the country's highest body of elected representatives, his mother might have yelled from the Bavarchikana, Bevakuf, se sapna dekhta hai kya? <laughs> okay, so Mudar, tell us about that moment and that test when you first saw, or maybe when you... When when Azaruddin made his debut, test debut for India. So I remember a couple of snatches of that. And I won't uh, be dishonest enough to say that I remember everything about it. But I do remember a few things. One, an extremely oversized helmet. It wasn't something that was of his size. It was something much larger. And secondly, you know, actually I had seen him uh, 84. I would have seen him about 10 months 
earlier in Jamshedpur, he was playing a duelip match. I had, I was happened to be reporting it, and I mentioned it in my copy. I, if I go back to 1984 February, I'll be able to be able to extract it. That Azharuddin batted as if he had all the time. And they used to say this about Ranji, that he batted as if he had all the time in the world. And the other thing they used to say about Ranji was that he batted. He could in the time that people take. to make to play one stroke he could play two and i happened to write that like ranji he had all the time to play and you know it would have sounded like a bloody exaggeration that here is a guy who's batting for i think south zone hyderabad boy nobody had heard of him he had definitely not played a test match and you comparing him to ranji so it would have sounded quite an exaggeration but within 10 months or 11 months he was actually playing for india and i remember that when he was walking in to the cricket association of bengal dinner you know it it sounds quite funny for me to say this now but he had worn a tie that was so thick and it came at least and ended about 3 inches above his navel now you know these things today if you look back it it looks awkward for me to say but when you look back within the prism of 1984 it spoke to me of a person who perhaps may not have been adept at wearing a tie may not have bought a tie and may not have been comfortable wearing it so it also spoke of where he had come from in life now he hit that century and it was a big thing to happen and then he scored two i remember mg akbar calling me and you know mg akbar he would never come to our cubicle because our cubicles were adjoining so akbar sat he was the editor of sunday and i remember one of the peons coming say akbar sahib dakshi akbar sahib dakshi means you know the summons have come he wasn't my editor my editor was patawdi but akbar sahib dakshi so i said he must be wanting something from me event open his room knocked timidly and you know open the door and akbar uh, scarcely looking up and uh, i went in all he told me was go to hyderabad that's all now again like that you know you're going to kanpur it's quite like that he didn't say anything more than that you have to figure out what he meant by go to hyderabad he meant that you go to hyderabad and interview azuruddin so effectively i went to even though they had sunday reporters akbar had convinced himself that the only man who can do justice to this is the cricket reporter from sports world now technically he should have gone through my editor got his clearance so all he said was go to hyderabad so i arranged my i mean that they arranged the ticket and stuff and they finally carried a cover story on sunday i interviewed uh, azaruddin i interviewed his dad and you know his uh, i got a flavor of his neighborhood and all that i did but interestingly middle class boy and the amazing thing in those days was you know what his innings and all was there that he had scored three centuries on the, on the trot the incredible thing was this thing that i think it was john woodcock who wrote that his paddle sweep and he said if you ask me to define perfection in sport this is it because the sweep was one thing what azharuddin was doing he wasn't sweeping boss he was hitting the paddle shot today all this has become standard boss he was doing it in 1984 85 and he was doing it against pat pocock pocock would come in and bowl to him and this guy was paddle sweep and the ball would go directly behind the wicketkeeper he said i'm not this is john woodcock writing about the fact that if you ask me to define perfection in sport this is it
So these are the memories that one had of Azaruddin in eighty four, eighty five. Is it? Is it uh, just a clarification? Is it Woodcock or Robin Marlar? So you may be right. And either I was thinking in my mind is perhaps it may be Marlar, but I, last instant I said perhaps John Woodcock. So you may be right. It's probably Robin Marlar. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh, I can uh, anyway check that. But but uh, you know uh, I must ask you, having seen the beginnings and having gone to Hyderabad and having seen where he came from. uh what was it like for you when you first uh, re- you know heard or read about uh, the night what happened in 199 and late 90s with the fixing so you know somewhere i believe that uh, and this is after having read that excellent book by harsha on uh, azhar in a lot of ways it was our story Harsha was uh, Azhar's story is our story, and in some ways it was a betrayal. Now, does it mean that he actually fixed? I don't know. Does it appear that he fixed? It certainly some of the things did appear odd, but uh, he appeared to be that virginal middle-class boy coming from. He was, he was a. I think he was a man of destiny in some ways, and. Uh, i think his later parts of his career were very very controversial and completely at a contrast and to that extent it was you know it one finds words very difficult to describe exactly what one feels but uh, what a man what a cricketer what a legend you know if you've seen him bat against lance kluzner in eden gardens and hit him for those four boundaries in one over it's a memory that eden gardens cherishes till today he didn't hit lance kluzner for four fours he dismissed lance kluzner from his presence and i think that was what azaruddin was and to think that one day that he would be accused of selling his country out whether that happened didn't happen one wouldn't know but the very fact that one raised that finger at him is itself Damn, damning i think i think that itself is the indictment so i think to that extent proved very disappointing yeah so uh, back again so you've told us about pakistan uh, and all your trips there and uh, you know uh, at least uh, touched upon imran and things but uh, 83 was also your first trip to the west indies Uh, and uh, of course you went there again in 89 but tell us about that no, I, mean, i didn't go i didn't go in 83 but i went in 89 oh you didn't go in 83 okay my bad i didn't go in 83 i didn't go in 83 okay so but then 89 uh, when you went to west indies which is like the <laughs> a place where you find a story every 3 meters tell us about that <laughs> so you know i think again the inspiration of the west indies tour and the way one would approach it much of it had been derived from another bloody day in paradise by frank keating i had read that books i would i would say that book i had probably read backwards because i had read it so many times it had become a part of me that i said if i go to the west indies i must do justice to those countries the way keating has done justice which means go out and meet people beyond the cricket or beyond the ground so i i, I think one of the highlights of my entire visit that there were number of highlights but one of them was definitely going and meeting uh, the daughter of leary constantine and uh, they were very nice they invited me to the house in uh, porto spain and spent a fair amount of time his daughter actually spoke very extensively about the family's experience with racism 
because Constantine had actually been a professional at Nelson. Nelson used to be a club in Lancashire. And this must have been around 1929 or 1930. In those days, England had not matured to what racism was. So effectively, she told me some very interesting descriptions of the kind of prejudice that they actually came up against. One of the things I still remember, I think on, my, on the first couple of days my father was in uh, Nelson, people shook his hand and then they checked their palms to check whether the, you know, the brown or the black had come off. So she said, I remembered this. And uh, we spoke about a number of things. And then she said that, uh, you know, we, we still retained all his diaries. So I said, I really want to see one. And, the, you know, in the next room, all his diaries have been arranged chronologically. And by chance, I happened to pick out 1929 and I opened the page. And, you know, I, it's just a coincidence. And uh, it happened to be the month of April. And there in one line was written, arrived in Nelson. And I thought this was such an amazing coincidence. And uh, to go, so I met Larry Constantine's daughter. I went and met Frank Worrell's widow. And she told me that there is a belief that Frank Worrell contracted leukemia when he came to India in 1966. As a result of which his daughter was turned off India for a very long time. She didn't ever want to come to this country. And she always held it against India that, you know, perhaps dad contracted leukemia in 1966 in India. And you also met uh, Gary Sober's mother. Very fleetingly outside his uh, their house, but not, not extensively, not extensively. In fact, I was ghost riding for Sir Gary as well on that tour because uh, he was riding for their features. And my job, one of my responsibilities was to uh, ghost Sir Gary's uh, column. So I had to actually spend time with him, understand exactly what, what he wanted to say, write that copy, show it to him, get it approved, and then transfer it to India. So I would see Sir Gary virtually every day across the series. Yeah, I must, I don't know if I mentioned this to you, but I must say that uh, when I, before I went to West Indies in 2006, uh, I was, uh, you know, lucky enough to uh, get access to uh, the collection of Sports World from uh, Clayton Murzello of Midday, oh. who has also been on this podcast. And I actually read all your dispatches from the West Indies, which was a huge advantage for me because it allowed me a lot of good groundwork before I could go to West Indies. So very happy to have gone to Subhash Gupta's house and the memories that he had, twinkling memory. Then, uh, which is the other... Met a guy called Foffy Williams. Foffy played Williams. For, <laughs> played for England in 1939. Played for West Indies against England in 1939. Of course, the more predictable interviews were with uh, Clyde Walcott, Everton Weeks. But the one other interview which I thought was a very good one to have done was one with uh, Rudy Webster, Dr. Rudy Webster. He was the person who was the psychoanalyst who turned Viv Richards around on that 1975-76 series against Australia. If you remember, in the first four or five test matches, four test matches, Will Richards didn't do much. In fact, he just about scraped 0, 1, 5 or whatever. And I think in the last test, he hit about 153, if I'm not mistaken. And he described to me the turnaround of... Uh, he's the, the uh, psychoanalyst credited with having turned Will Richards' career around. Yeah, and, uh, and in 2006, in fact, he was with the Indian team and he had a big role to play in uh, Virendra Sevag uh, as well. Oh. Uh, uh, turning his game around. Uh, after Very interesting. Time. You know, in those days, the advantage of the 1989 tour was it was pre-media. 
so mm. you know there was no electronic there were no electronic channels and there was, so you know you, you had relatively few uh, cricket writers so some of these individuals who needed to be interviewed they weren't under any pressure they, you know they weren't being carpet bombed so to that extent if you identified and you had a good prospect you could engage that in, in, individual in a reasonable conversation go deep into a subject and you could even befriend some of them you know so you actually had vesol vesol is one guy who never gave an interview but what a presence yeah what a presence and uh, one day i remember it was uh charlie griffith or was it gilchrist walking into the press box and it was interesting i remember once uh, the first uh, game that i saw in antigua one man coming into the press box and rather not just the press box was going into the stands and collecting money for the groundsman was joel garner i couldn't believe it i said in india the guy would have been mobbed his clothes would have been torn off he would have he wouldn't have been able to collect even 1 rupee but look at the dignity quiet dignity with which joel garner is going right through the stands and collecting money for the groundsman i found that very touching and very interesting insight into how west indians live this is another memory of that trip uh, i remember in antigua there was this photographer called colin kambabach and colin had told me that you come to antigua man i'll take you to the beach and we play cricket i'll we'll swim so i said okay so antigua i took me to the beach now you know in antigua there are 365 beaches 365 beaches on the small island so they have one particular beach called st james and we started playing cricket and so in cricket with two or three people bowl fast and you know the ball comes kids of the of the beach of the you know when the tide runs out and there's a little moisture left in the sand that balls kids of the so called pitch so i was batting and suddenly you know i must have batted for an over or two i casually turned around to look near towards the sea between the wicket and the sea there's somebody standing at second slip and that happens to be Isaac Vivian Alexander Richards and Viv Richards was the captain during the series he was taking a break so Viv Richards came bowled to me batted fielded in the slips and we were not more than five guys playing only five people and nobody else no spectators nothing five people playing beach cricket i was one of them so these are the incredible memories of the west indies tour uh, and Today, you did write about it right sorry you did write a piece about that right the beach cricket i wrote a piece i took photographs said but you know it it sounds today like make believe but it actually happened it actually <laughs> happened for them it's very it's very usual for them it's very usual this is not is not something which is out of the ordinary yeah and and i think uh, it continues even to this day i mean uh, the, there's something about the west indian appreciation for cricket that goes well beyond hero worship it's it's like the boys next door and they treat them like that And, uh, I remember in Port of Spain, I did an interview with a man whose name is now virtually forgotten, Charlie Davis. And uh, 1971. Now this is where again my old Sports Week memories came in handy, because that's the one name we would always keep reading: Charlie Davis, Sunil Gavaskar. Charlie Davis, three people actually: Charlie Davis, Sunil Gavaskar, Dilip Sardesai. But Charlie Davis was the West Indian hero because he scored so heavily. So I said, I must track Charlie Davis down. so i tracked charlie davis down and charlie davis is very kind enough to come to our hotel the sabina park hotel no no sorry the uh, the was this queens park oval hotel and very nice of him to come he asked me why have you hunted me out 
So I told him why. That is my memories of the old and 1971 tour. Then after that, he was absolutely okay. He told me about his fetish. You know, most of us have funny cravings and funny fetishes. Charlie Davis told me about his fetish for Coca-Cola. He said he would have 30 or 35 bottles a day. He was addicted. So he told me then gradually how he got out of it. And, but you know, the, the conversations became interesting. This is what the conversations were all about. The, the idea was not just to do a cricket tour. Idea was to go and get a flavor of that country. It wasn't one country. There were a number of countries. The idea was to go and get a flavor of these countries. The flavor of the people. What kind of people are they? How relaxed are these? And of course, at the back of everything was Frank Keating's Another Bloody Day in Paradise. Yeah, I remember that piece on Charlie Davis. In fact, you even mentioned that the Coca-Cola company then decided to sponsor him or something like that. Yeah, <laughs> they were they were intrigued by this guy who would just keep guzzling Coca-Cola. He said it was an addiction that I couldn't get out of. So he said even when I traveled, I would take my quota of Coca-Cola bottles because somewhere the taste differed also. He said I would carry my bottles around. It was very interesting. Yeah, very interesting. Uh, uh, okay, so then. Uh, In eighty nine, you know, West Indies, but also Pakistan, and one of the, of course, there was Tendulkar in Pakistan, but one of the recurring uh, themes of both those tours was Sanjay Manjrekar, and at that point of time, Manjrekar was in fact uh, considered the best batsman and perhaps the next great Indian batsman. What are your memories of him back then? I would say completely. I mean, if you take nineteen eighty nine, West Indies as well as Pakistan. Manjrekar was supposed to be the next Gavaskar. See, Tendulkar had not yet emerged. So, Manjrekar was a guy who had scored double centuries. He scored big hundreds. So, you know, I remember one particular match. This must have been Saint Vincent, and uh, he was batting against Patrick Patterson and Indians. The Indian team very pathetic score, but Manjrekar scored thirty six on that terrible wicket. And all of us felt that you know there's something happening. If this man can score 36 standing up to Patrick Patterson, this guy must be amazing. And sure enough, I think next match he scored a double century. And uh, what do I remember of him in Pakistan? Actually, remember him singing. Uh, he, I don't know. Most people are not aware. Manjrekar is an absolutely outstanding singer. He doesn't sing. The halka kalam. He sings heavy stuff. So I remember in, we had this Sunday club in uh, in Pakistan because you know the other thing in Pakistan is nothing to do socially here. What do you do? So I suggested to Kapil that let's create a Sunday club here. So idea is that we'll we'll pull uh, people in and we pull some money and we'll do some crazy stuff together. He said, Yeah, great, let's do it. So we got along and in the Sunday club we asked Manjrekar to sing. So I remember Manjrekar with lipstick on his. Lips tied uh, uh, tied around his head. He sang "Ranjishi Sahi Dil Hi Dukhane Ke Liya Mehdi Hasan." And at one point, I actually felt it might have been Mehdi Hasan singing. He was that good. Uh, I think somewhere later also he sung not professionally, but he sung at serious platforms. But that day, everyone just shut up and heard him sing the entire "Ranjishi Sahi." He was very good. Wow! On that yeah, trip, also we got Gavaskar. We Sorry. also got Gavaskar to record a calypso. So you know what? Because Manjrekar had uh, was bat kept batting and kept batting. So I said, "Yeah, I must do a takeoff." And I uh, did the, got the lyrics of Lord Relators. Uh, they couldn't get Gavaskar out at all. They couldn't out Gavaskar at all. 
and i wrote a calypso in honor of uh, manjrekar now that could have been just an usual like anyone could have done it so i told gavaskar can you record it for me so gavaskar said okay give me a recorder so i gave him a recorder and i gave him a cassette and gavaskar said tomorrow you collect it from me you know what gavaskar did he took it to his hotel bathroom and there in that silence and the resonation he recorded it and gave it to us the next day now the sad part is that i don't know where that cassette has disappeared you know this is this is where i feel that stuck sir if i'd been a bit more careful that would be archival layer i forgot that. i don't know where it's gone yeah oh man now you now you have really made me feel very bad that all these things are lost <laughs> completely i mean this is I lost and the other one that i lost was in 1982 i had gone to interview dr jahangir khan because he played for india in the 1932 test at lords i had recorded the i knew it was an important interview so i had recorded the entire interview on my cassette you won't believe what happened thereafter i bought it to india everything was okay you know you also in those days the, the cassettes used to have a lug if you knock the lug off you could overwrite on the cassette so the cassette was protected one day i got into my head in the neighbors all the boys in my neighborhood they said there's this young girl called nazia hasan and she sings damn well let's record her i said yeah i got a spare cassette you know i put tape over that that lug and re-recorded and knocked the entire recording of dr jahangir khan out oh my god i can't believe what an ass i've been here <laughs> that would have been that would have been truly archival because you know what not many people today would have voice recordings of dr jahangir khan describe that first test match at lords he also described the sparrow incident you know when he bowled and the sparrow died yeah, and yeah. you know eventually got embalmed he described everything to me he described the coming crossing the border he described the fact that they came from a village from near jalandhar they described the families the way they came and settled down in zaman park he dis- all that would have been truly archival all gone so today of course his voice is not there the copy is there the interview was carried in sports world but boss the voice would have been something else so i i so it's the young man in you chose nazia hasan over jahangir khan i was indiscretion of you sir indiscretion of you very very bad indiscretion of you but the thing about manjrekar is one thing at least that survives at manjrekar is the lyrics uh, and uh, shekhar gupta had quote uh, has quoted it in a column of his about the song and how maninder singh and rajdan siddhu in a turban kapil dev and ramesh shastri yeah, yeah. and all that so i will link yeah. that i will link that piece <laughs> so maybe i think maybe the lyrics are there in the old sports world copies also uh, maybe it lies in my collection as well but uh, it's very nice of him to remember sadly if i could have had access to that uh, the calypso that would have been something else yeah. maybe it gives me an idea that i'm going to write to gavaskar and say that you know these are the lyrics you had recorded this for me in 1980 1989 november would you mind doing it 31 years later he might just say yes yeah absolutely why not and then it'll we'll have a, a legendary bit of uh, recording so if you if you if you send me the lyrics i'll probably send this request to him and ask him to read i will and send now it's going to be right so away. much easier he can just do it on the cell phone and send it to me and then it becomes a small file which i can just send back to you absolutely and and it also should uh, remind you or at least uh, i'm let me nudge you towards uh, writing your memoirs look at the number of stories you have what is this <laughs> you we cannot uh, lose I your story feel that there'll be no i sometimes feel that nobody is going to listen read and listen no nobody is going to these are all prehistoric yeah. uh, well uh, mudar let me just give you uh, tell you what some uh, great writers have already said 
when you have great secrets put them in a book so that's that's all i will say <laughs> i mean you'll get the readership over many years this is like forest gump story i'm listening to him he's you know he's ghosted imran khan ghosted gary sobers played cricket with mustaq ali you know played cricket, cricket with bimrichards bimrichards <laughs> <laughs> yeah. this is just crazy coincidence is all falling in a short span so I'll, I'll give you one more anecdote I'll give you one more anecdote of 1991 92 I'd gone to Pune and I said let me go and interview Dr Professor Devdhar because Professor Devdhar was 100 years old 99 years old at that time and of course Professor Devdhar being Professor Devdhar he dismissed Tendulkar he said oh this boy can't bat like he can I do and all that he said I said you know maybe that you know, this is age getting the better of him but then i told asked him for some memorabilia he said yes you know i have something it is a thigh pad and this was given to me by jack hobbs in 1931 he had come for with uh, vijayanagaram's team sutcliffe and hobbs you know you do one thing you ask your friend to come next week send him a give him a covering letter ask him i will give him the thigh pad you know the thigh pad i've got a little museum at home the thigh pad of sir jack hobbs is there in my collection at home today wow. oh wow wow <laughs> if i if i had stuck around in cricket i would have deepened my interest in memorabilia and i would have actually set up a very serious museum on indian cricket which i definitely wanted to do at that time but sadly you know my visibility in indian cricket progressively declined and uh, i couldn't sustain my vis- visibility was the only thing i mean i couldn't possibly go up to a dravid and ask him for his thigh guard he wouldn't even know who i was so i think that was the one setback otherwise this indian cricket memorabilia museum would have become a reality for bcci by now Wait, you're saying you could? You're saying you think Rahul Dravid doesn't know who you are? No, maybe, but you know, I wouldn't be able to get Come access on. to him as easily as I would have been able. Come to on, if what I were, are you talking about? <laughs> maybe he has, he has definitely read you. Come on, what are you talking about? No, I'm just saying that I, you need visibility to. So I sometimes get into my head that I must write to Saurav and tell him that you know, I can set up a great museum in Eden Gardens, a little like Lords, a little because I think Lords are different class altogether. but it's possible you need one madman to be working on that subject for 20 years and then finally get something going but you know i i written a message to him and got no reply then said no maybe he hasn't seen my email but uh, maybe one day i'll again write to him you never know second like a 20 year run on one subject whether it's in cci whether it's in uh, in eden gardens i think we can definitely do much of the riches of this country should remain so i'll the reason i say this is that in the year 1991 there was a gentleman who offered me a collection he said you come and have a look at my collection a gujarati gentleman in calcutta so i went and looked at his collection it turned out to be dulips collection so i said how the hell did you get dulips collection he said i have my contacts all over somebody gave me this so i said let me go through it it contained letters by gandhi to dulip it contained letters from ranji to dulip it contained letters from jardin to dulip before the bodyline series it contained letters you can the vast number of names pelham warner to dulip the works and this was an entire carton full of letters and photographs and stuff so i said look i really want to buy this off in 1991 i had very little my net worth was negligible 
He said, I'll sell it to you for one lakh. I didn't have one lakh. So I let it go. He finally gave it, gave it to Sussex County Cricket Club. And I think today, the entire collection of Dulip is there in Sussex County Cricket Club. It contained his passports. It contained a small envelope, which I still remember. Which Gandhi in those days wrote in, in pencil. Gandhi had probably gone for the roundtable conference of 1930. And the Ashes series was going on at that time. And Gandhi just wrote to Dulip saying, will come. Signed, MK. That's all. And I saw the envelope. Okay. So, uh, let me come, I mean, before I get to the final bit, let me come to a, a few uh, games which, I, I hope you're okay on time, Mudar. I don't want to stretch no, you yeah. too much. No issue at all. Okay. So, um, I have to ask you about uh, three, you know, uh, let me just stick to three uh, thrilling moments of the mid-80s that you were there for. One was that uh, Australasia Cup where Miandad hit that six to win them the game. And yep. talk us about that uh, game, that series, and also about cricket in Sharjah at that time. I mean, it must have been like uh, uh, something, uh, <laughs> people must have gone really berserk about watching cricket so back then. I remember that, that you know, the, the, that particular match was interesting because the press box and the Pakistani dressing room were virtually adjacent. So if they walked out of the dressing room, they had to pass the press box. You could see them. You could see them talking. You know, not many people will remember one master stroke. Everybody remembers Miranda 6. What they won't remember is the fact that Abdul Qadir was promoted in the batting order and Abdul Qadir was a game changer. You see, until that point, Miranda, in fact, for the first 100 runs, I don't think Miranda scored a century, I mean, hit a boundary or something. Maybe very few. He only kept picking singles and twos, singles and twos, singles and twos. And I think the score that India was wanting to protect was about 245 or 246, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, Miranda played a very muted game. Abdul Qadir came in as the game changer and he completely turned the match around by hitting a straight six. And suddenly everybody said, oh my God, it looks like you know the Pakistanis have a match going for themselves. And uh, Imran standing always outside the dressing room, which is adjacent to the press box, watching the match from there. And uh, when Miranda hit that six, everybody ran out into the ground. They brought him back and it took a number of minutes for them to come back into the dressing room. We were all there. I mean, one could just see what was happening. At the end of it, I think he couldn't walk properly because... So many people have climbed over him and, you know, somebody had probably walked over his thigh. He was limping. That evening was the uh, dinner. When he walked into that dinner and the dinner was on a poolside dinner, the entire crowd, I mean, the audience, I mean, they, they all select people who had been invited, uh, virtually stood up in a standing ovation for the man here. I think looking back these 34 years, I think it was a great thing that Pakistan won the match. And you know, it's very ironic and awkward for an Indian to say so. But if you see it from the prism of cricket, I think if Pakistan had lost the match, no Indian would even remember that we won. But the very fact that Pakistan won the match, Indians have never forgot, forgotten that we lost. And to that extent, it is seen as a turning point in India's cricket history. Remember, previous to that, we had won the World Cup in 83. We had won the, the Australia, the... Uh, Champion, the champion of champions in Australia in 1985. But in 86, when this happened, it marked a turning point. And that turning point, they say, got another turning point uh, when Tendulkar hit Shoya Bhaktar out of the ground at uh, Centurion. 
in South Africa. So you know, see how the wheel turns full circle. But I think if you look at it from the cricket perspective, it was a great thing for the game. Then Miandar hit the sixth, and Pakistan won the match. Yeah, and it's often forgotten that it was Pakistan's first multi-nation victory. So that was a big, big deal for them as well, uh, in terms of uh, purely cricketing victories. So, so um, if, if if I were to describe it, I would probably say that Pakistaniyat that you talk about is a lot of that originates with the one six, the feeling that you know we can do it as a country when you see it from their perspective. And uh, then one man swung the entire nation and gave it its identity and its personality. Otherwise, remember in '85, they were defending 123 or something like that, and they lost that. They got bowled out for 81 with Gavaskar picking up those five catches and stuff in Sharjah. So they never believed they could pull this off against India. And again, when they scored the when India scored 245 and they were in a bit of a problem, again the same demons were back. And Pakistan can't make it. And here this guy goes, last ball, and he hits a six. It's after that the destiny for that country from a cricketing nation changed. That's why they felt they should have won the World Cup in '87. Absolutely, yeah. That's I mean, and they were the best team in '87, no doubt. So, uh, but talking about destiny, though, uh, while it worked out so well for Pakistan, uh, poor Chetan got associated fully with that Chetan Sharma, and uh, yeah, Chetan so, you know, Sharma it's actually. Like, <laughs> it's like Malcolm Nash, you know. Malcolm Nash gets hits for six, 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 and over. That becomes his claim to fame. I mean, claim to infame. But uh, it's so, it's so, and so it is with Chetan Sharma. Imagine if he had bowled a Yorker and uh, Miandar had just been able to nudge it for two. We'd always remember him in the same way we remembered Tendulkar who bottled up McMillan in the Hero Cup final. Yeah, and, uh, and uh, the iron- irony is that uh, Chetan Sharma was actually having a good time then because uh, uh, he helped India win the series in England. He had a very good 1987 World Cup with that hat-trick and things. But then this one moment is connected to yeah, him yeah. for always. He would still be… In fact, even today when people do speak to him, probably you know, even in a reasonable conversation, they're probably going to bring up this, this particular delivery. One ball. <laughs> one ball. <laughs> Okay, so the next game I want to talk about is the tight test in Madras. And the last day and the drama that must have been there at that time, back when the press box was outdoors and uh, I guess the heat was would have been unbearable. How was it? What are your memories of that day? So, I must confess that I wasn't there for the match. Oh, I okay. I'm sorry. I went back. <laughs> the next match was in Delhi. And I remember that in Delhi, I went around interviewing every single journalist who was present. I, I told them that, you know, what you've seen is history. How would you describe it? And everybody gave me such fascinating perspectives. But, you know, I wasn't there for the test. And what I did was I interviewed all the journalists and created my own story thereafter. But I wasn't there in flesh and blood. Wow. Okay. Wonderful. And the third so, test, sir, I will... So, Siddhi, yeah. I have to intervene here slightly to go on a tangent. Is that why you don't like Chepok? <laughs> no, no, I'm the, sorry. Please... No, in the piece that you wrote about Eden Gardens after the Shah Rukh, uh, uh, scene in Wankade, where you said, come to Calcutta, let's make it special. You kind of skip Chennai and move on when you talk about the great grounds. So I was just curious about your relationship with Chepok. I've, in fact, very ironically, never seen a match at that, at that ground. It's because maybe in my sports world days, we had a representative in Chennai to report. So it was always like intruding on his stuff if you went and reported a match from Chennai. So, sadly, I've never been able to report a match from Chepok. So, the other historic match, of course, that you must tell us about is 89 in Pakistan, when Karachi, when Tendulkar played. 
uh, and the whole Tendulkar debut series. Any uh, any fond memories of that? And the game yeah, getting the, the, yeah. the big memories are not there because sadly he didn't score big. Hmm. You know, for a man who's done so much in his career, he didn't score a century on debut. Uh, but I do remember that we were, you know, the Karachi press box is very distant from the ground. It's right on the upper uh, levels. I exited the press box and I found my way right down to sit as close to the ground as possible. I remember that because somewhere I had this, I won't call it premonition, but I felt that a 16-year-old is going to play his first test. It's special. And number two, by then, Sports World had already done a cover story on him. And he had written about the fact that this guy, uh, in his uh, the, the size and the magnitude of his scoring, comes very close to Bradman. So that sense of history was there. And I said, you know, 16 years old, sense of history, Bradman-esque. There's something about this. I shouldn't miss these moments. I don't think he scored too many. I don't think he even got into double digits. I think he got out for nine. But... Uh, I think I went down and virtually recorded every delivery that he played. And then finally, just stayed in my text, my notebook. Next couple of test matches, he did better. But more important is that on that tour, one engaged with him in the Sunday club, of course. Maybe, you know, got him to dress like a girl and we made up his face. And, you know, we put uh, lipstick on his uh, lips and all that we did. And uh, I think it was Sialkot. It rained. There had nothing to do. The press box was again very, it was adjacent to the uh, pavilion. And uh, we played cricket, indoor cricket. So he would, he was, he was, he was obsessed. He got any opportunity to play cricket. Wherever he found, he got a ball and he would, hand, so they would play hand cricket. So Manjrekar and he would keep playing hand cricket. So if they, they were not playing cricket in the ground because it was raining, they would be playing hand cricket in the pavilion. So, at that time, Srikanth would say, this guy is a bit of a nutcase. You know, he'll sleepwalk. And he, at night when he's asleep in his hotel room, he keeps talking about bat and middling and all that. So, you know, this amused sense of awe and wonder would, had already emerged about Tendulkar. And nobody knew that he was going to become a great cricketer or something. And I remember Kapil Dev's wives telling me, that, look how sweet he is as a boy. Kapil Dev's, I remember Kapil Dev walking out of the pavilion, see this, seeing this guy playing hand cricket, would first go up to him, put his hand right through his head and, and you know, squeeze his cheeks. I've actually seen Kapil Dev squeeze Tendulkar's cheeks. He was a kid, 16-year-old. So everybody, you know, treated him like you know, your youngest brother that you have in the team. They probably treated like that also by many of them. Wonderful. So, uh, early 90s, I think, if I'm not wrong, is when you decided to quit uh, full-time uh, cricket. Am I right? 1990, Ju July. I was supposed to be going to England. Remember, we had gone to, we were going to England in, uh, in uh, 1990. The famous yes. series where Azharuddin was captain and Bedi was the, uh, Bedi was the manager. Yes. And uh, my tickets were virtually booked to go to England. I told my, in all fairness, I told them that, look, I, I think I'll be resigning once I return. So they said, you know, if you're going to go and come back and resign, we'd rather not send you. So I said, then the call is really yours. So effectively, they called off my visit. And uh, I would have loved to go to England. I had all plans scheduled that I'm going to this city, I'll do this, this city, I'll do this, apart from just the cricket. But you know, it never happened. 
and uh, my employer on the stock market also insisted that I join as soon as I as I could. And uh, sadly, the two worlds never converged, and I just had to make my choice. So, what was the impetus, uh, and or is it something that you had given yourself a certain time to do this, or what was the impetus? I'd got too fascinated by the stock market. I'll tell you fundamentally. I saw cricket as a game being played by twenty-two individuals. Stock market, I saw it as a game being played by maybe a couple of thousand listed players, a couple of thousand listed companies. So the number of players was larger, and uh, each one had a personality, each one had a character. I also felt that the markets were completely under-researched. You know, if you spoke about a certain investing in a certain company, you just didn't know enough about them. So I felt there was a great opportunity. I was bang on right, incidentally. In fact, in those days, the number of researchers on the stock markets—you could probably count them on the fingers of three or four hands. That's all for a country. I said, "This is great fun," and I was so fascinated by the fact that you could actually research companies, commodities, sectors to be able to predict what's going to happen to their stocks. And here in cricket, I didn't have a skin in the game. You know, I was just a reporter. I could just report on twenty-two cricketers and come back, but I couldn't possibly identify the next Bradman. I couldn't buy stocks of the next Bradman and make a killing five years later. And I could possibly, you know, I couldn't buy into a Brian Lara in nineteen eight nineteen eighty-nine and say that five years down the road, boss, I'm going to make a great killing because Lara is going to become the next great Bradman. I, I couldn't possibly monetize that. So somewhere I felt that it was a little limiting. Stock markets appeared to be far more compelling as an alternative. So I felt that the challenge was much more, and uh, I felt I had to move on. And I felt also that let me make a lot of money on stocks and then be able to finance my interest in cricket. Then I'd be open to going to watch cricket anywhere in the world without a magazine deciding whether it should send me or not. But you know what? When I got seduced by the stock market, I got seduced all right. I just didn't have time for cricket thereafter, and that's what—that's how it remains. That's how it remains. I think uh, Mahesh, uh, who uh, is also, you know, deals in and also trades, uh, might agree with this sentiment. Finding your cricket obsession with uh, the money you make in the stock market. Yeah, but uh, unfortunately or fortunately, I never did the full time first. So for me, I'm still holding on to that. I still use. Some of the money that I earned to go around the world and watch cricket. Uh, in fact, I was planning to go to uh, Sri Lanka for uh, the England series that was due. Unfortunately, because of the COVID situations, it's not happening. But uh, yeah, uh, the plan is the same because I didn't have the ten years of sports world experience and implement. I'm implementing them. So I'll tell you another thing that happened, and maybe my exit was at the right time. I think the world of the media changed. I think the room to write. romantic cricket the room to write a spacious and a and leisurely lyrical style of cricket that evolved because i think the pace of cricket accelerated and i think reportage became more about getting the next quote and the next bite and didn't become as much of uh, writing and getting into i mean if i were to ask would a neville cardis would have been able to survive today he would have provided he had a manchester guardian to back him So you know you need the right media platform for somebody to write romantic cricket stuff. Cricket at the end of the day is not just a game; it's 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 an art form. 
But the art form and cricket writing is also an art form. Sadly, I feel that the room for the art form has declined. The cricket writing is that space for the art form has declined. And I also believe that the game is accelerated to the point where everyone, every individual, every player has become virtually a statistic. And I think the game has been shorn of its characters. Even Srikanth. I mean, Srikanth was an absent-minded batsman. He would do crazy things. He was a character. Sadly, today, those characters have declined. I mean, the craving for storytelling remains, right? It's just, uh, the, as you say, I mean, the, the, I guess it's difficult to monetize the kind of writing that we're talking about, which is why editors and publications are wary. But uh, otherwise, I think the space for it and the demand for it remains because occasionally you will find this really long and a terrific piece on someone and people will lap it up. I mean, they may not lap it up in the millions, but they will still lap it up to the extent that they are deeply moved by it. So I do accept that on online and I do say Crick Info is possibly one of the few platforms that gives that kind of uh, latitude. Uh, well, I'm just saying that the newspapers that I read, the physical newspapers that I read in the morning, uh, I don't see that kind of uh, spaciousness and that kind of birth there. I, I see it more on the online stuff and I uh, see, you know, when somebody sends me a link, oh, this has appeared here, this has appeared. I think to that extent, there is still some kind of a latitude left for great romantic cricket writing. But is it happening in the print media? I can't remember the last print media article. Well, okay, I read some of the columns that some of the ex-cricketers write, but great romantic reportage, I don't remember for years anybody having done that. Well, hopefully, uh, you there will there can be a time when that can be done, and uh, maybe there will be some benevolent editor as well as benevolent owners who will be willing to pump in some money for this. But uh, let me ask you uh, one uh, a question about one piece, uh, in fact, which was carried in Wisden Asia Cricket in the early two thousands, and this was after you had left Sports World, and this was during the. You had written about the 92-93 England-India series when your relationship with your aging father, uh, you know, had really uh, blossomed during that time. Can you talk a bit about that? I wish I could link the piece, but it's not online. But can you talk a bit about that piece? My father had played competitive cricket uh, in Surat uh, before migrating to Calcutta. And he played competitive cricket for Mahmudin Sporting as an opener when he migrated here as well. I think in our community in Calcutta, he was one of the evangelists in selecting the Maidan place where the community could play cricket. So he bought a lot of his, uh, uh, I would say his, uh, you know, he, he was the kind of person who would never talk about cricket or, you know, your commitment to cricket. He would never use words like commitment to cricket. He referred to it as khidmat. And I think that's the, that's the kind of engagement he had with, with, the, with the sport. So... He belonged to an older generation. He wasn't, he was, in fact, I was a late child. So there was a gap of a number of years. So gradually, while I was still a teenager, he was, he was an older gentry. He's also a man of a different generation, not only, just, not only chronologically, but also psychologically and emotionally. So we never quite get, got along. But I do know that, uh, you know, he, he suffered a paralytic stroke in the early 90s and never quite recovered thereafter. But uh, even those days while he was paralyzed, he would still watch cricket and uh, he would engage with the game. And uh, he would keep asking about, 
Sidhu. And so even though his speech was slurred and he couldn't use one half of his body, I think the only thing I think that kept him going intellectually, emotionally, psychologically was cricket. Because the rest, he couldn't engage with football. That was alien to him. But he kept himself engaged with cricket. And I think who scored what, how much did Sidhu score... These are the little things that became a very big thing in his childlike mind. And I think to that extent, cricket was a flame that kept his... Or, uh, cricket was an interest that kept the flame of his life going. And uh, I remember Harsha. We, Harsha would, in the late 80s, would come and stay at our residence in Calcutta. And he developed an engagement with my dad as well. So when Harsha wrote, he would write about this to my, to my dad. Or my, he wrote letters to me. And those days, we used to write letters. But... Uh, I remember that when cricket, when my father started watching cricket after his paralytic stroke, I think he perked up. He became a little more alive than usual. And I think it was cricket that did that for him. A lot of, you know, we, we expect that there's only just so much that a physiotherapist can do. There's only so much that a physiotherapist can do to an ailing limb or an ailing body. But, you know, there's so much more that the magic of an old game could do in his mind because it could trigger emotions, it could trigger uh, memories. And I think that's what the flicker of a Sidhu on a television screen did that for his memory. And I think to that extent, it kept him perked up and alive. And I think that's what I wrote about. That my engagement with my father went through the prism of cricket and it improved to the point that I would say I fell in love with my father all over again. I would say that very responsibly. It's not that I wasn't ever in love with him. It never was manifested. But after he was paralyzed and through the prism of cricket, I somewhere I discovered that I actually quite loved him. So the last question I had was about, uh, you know, we all often ask our guests, especially uh, people who are uh, into reading cricket for one book recommendation. Uh, so, anything that you could give our listeners about a book that uh, you feel they should read will be great. I found uh, another Bloody Day in Paradise very interesting because it is written in a very spunky style. You know, it, though the series wasn't anything great, but written in a style that made it spunky to read and it excited me. So, that's a book that I keep going back to. There's always a CLR James, which has been beyond a boundary. But you know what? I'll be very honest. I haven't read it too often in life. So I can't keep saying. But I would say Another Bloody Day in Paradise by Frank Keating. If there's any book by Frank Keating, I generally pick it up and read. Because I think his descriptive capability is at a different level completely. So this was about the 81 uh, England tour to West Indies, That's right? right. Yes, yes. And you know, to that extent, it's a very limited perspective on just one series. But I think uh, the way he's treated the book, but more than the treatment, I think the way he's written it. I keep coming back to this freshly, youthful, spunky, irreverent writing. I think that's fascinating. And I think uh, I've always wanted to write like that. So I always felt that if I could infuse my writing with that kind of irreverence, the, the ability to look at things a little laterally, the ability to de describe things differently, this is what I, what I would have wanted to be. Yeah, I think the uh, tribute to that uh, book by Frank Keating was that in 1986, Francis Edmonds 
uh, wrote a book, Another Bloody Tour, about the 1986 tour and trying to sort of uh, mimic how yeah. Keating had done it. Obviously, not as good, but still, it's, uh, as they say, you know, uh, imitation is the best form of flattery. Mm. So but clearly influenced by Another Bloody Day in Paradise. So I have it in my, in my, my uh, collection at home, very prominently there, I could have always kept it in a, in a carton or, you know, in a trunk. But no, this book is, if you are ever wanting to pick yourself up for five minutes, just go to that book, read it and put it back. Wonderful. So, uh, I must tell our listeners that uh, Mudar also, I mean, he has touched upon it, but also has a, is, I have not seen it, but supposed to have a wonderful library and a collection of memorabilia and a mini museum of sorts in his house. So, maybe someday I will get a chance to visit and take a look at that. <laughs> You're most welcome. You're most welcome. In fact, I must tell you this, that I have the stump that was used in the 1932 test match at Lords. Oh, wow. <laughs> the twelfth man was a gentleman called Godambe. So Godambe gave it to Madhav Mantri years later. And Madhav Mantri gave it to me. Oh, wow. Yeah, I mean, anyone in the BCCI listening to this, please uh, uh, consider forming a museum with the help of <laughs> Mudar, if he is willing, of course. So <laughs> the president of this the president of the BCCI doesn't live more than eight kilometers from my house. Yeah, yes. So yeah, if anyone who knows the president of the BCCI is listening to this, please let him know. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> All right. This was uh, fantastic, right. Mudar. Thank you so much for Thank everything. You. And uh, entirely my pleasure. I'll send you the lyrics to that Manjrekar thing and I'll keep in touch. Yeah, please. Please do. Okay, good night. Thank you. Bye. We'll come back for the second. India have won the test match. India have won the series. They're going to get back for two. India at home. Lords goes wide.